Hello and welcome back to Scream Addicts Hammer Pub. I am James, your co-host. I am sitting here with Paul Farrell. Paul, how's it going tonight, man? I'm doing good, man. Doing good. Good. I, dude, it's funny. I, I know I usually do the typical like high energy thing, like blah 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 blah. Point of fact, man. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a mood, Paul. Uh, it's been, it's been a week. Uh, things probably been a week for you too, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, it's uh things are there there's some darkness out in the world right now that we have to navigate. Um yeah. Yeah, there sure is. Difficult. I uh, uh I just I wanted to mention up top at the beginning of the show, it's it's weird. I mean, this is meant to be a fun podcast that everybody can tune into, maybe crack a beer or uh a good alcoholic beverage and you know, maybe kick back and uh you know, watch a Hammer film with us or just listen to a fun podcast or whatever. But I, I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't note at the very beginning of this show that, unfortunately, the horror community lost somebody this past week. And um, I, I, I thought it very worth it to take a moment and mention who they were. Paul, you're familiar with uh, Brandon Suttles, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So he was... He was a really noteworthy member of the horror community. I didn't know him super well. We followed one another and we had a few interactions, but you know, I wouldn't say exactly I was like online close with the guy, you know, but he he always struck me as just being like an endlessly positive guy, like very funny, super cool, always very nice. Um he has been battling cancer for Paul, what's it been? Has it been a couple of years, I think? Yeah, I think um I think it was since 2019, if I recall correctly. Um, and it, it kind of came up pretty quickly on him. I don't think it was, you know, it was something that was, yeah, obviously it's always a surprise, but there was no, you know, nothing before that. And then suddenly it was very, uh, very bad, you know, as some, some of these things are, are prone to do, but um, yeah, he's, and as you mentioned, very, very prominent in the horror community, um, did a lot of, a lot of things to sort of uplift the horror community while, you know, uh, fighting the battle he was fighting, um, and raising money and awareness, uh, for the cause, not just his own cause, but other people afflicted with, um, what he was afflicted with. Um, and it was, you know, really a one, just a really, I don't know, engage, uplifting and um, inspirational just kind of journey. That, and it was incredibly brave of him to share not just his, you know, the victories that he would have or, you know, uh, but, but the pain and like what he was actually going through um, and sharing that with the world to kind of not just like let people in on what he was going through, but to sort of rally uh, support and and kind of show how even people who don't necessarily know each other really well or have never met in person can make a difference in each other's lives. I think he's somebody that really represents that. Um, and uh, he shared, I think his his full story is available to read on uh, Bloody Disgusting. Uh, John Squire's did like an i think i don't know if it was like an interview or if he had brandon sort of just write it all down but um 
yeah he he published that on bloody i don't i don't remember when that came out maybe a year ago or two years ago um but it's it's a really compelling and interesting story that that not only goes into what he went through um but it goes into like his horror fandom um and sort of what why the genre was sort of inspirational to him and how it how it enabled him to sort of navigate the pain he was going through you know we always talk about horror horror can be a lot of different things to different people um but it, it's a great way to escape real world horrors, right? It's a, it, we've always said it's like, it's like a safe place to go. You know, Wes Craven said that, you know, horror movies aren't a place where people go to put fear in. It's where they go to take fear out. You know, that's paraphrasing, but that's, you know, kind of what Brandon's horror fandom kind of represented to me. Um, and it's just, it's, I, it, it's, terrible that he passed away but i think it's really wonderful that his story is out there and able to be read and shared and therefore he can continue you know his legacy can sort of live on um and of course he had children uh and and, you know his wife who's incredibly supportive um and i'm sure you're you're gonna mention it and plug in the show notes but there is a gofundme out there yeah um that i really recommend um everybody donate to uh, if you can i know it's hard right now um but this goes towards helping getting everything settled obviously their medical he i mean he had a hospital stint recently that was like more than 60 days um which anybody that's ever been in the hospital knows is incredibly expensive um and even though insurance helps it doesn't cover everything so um, yeah, if, if, if you, if you can, uh, donate and, and seek out his story. Um, I don't want to, you know, go too deep into it cause I'm sure I'll get details wrong, but, uh, John Squires did a really wonderful thing by immortalizing that on the site. Um, and I think they recently did a write up uh, as well about what happened and, and again, plugging the, uh, GoFundMe, uh, so more people have access to it. So definitely recommend uh, checking all that out and just kind of reading his story. I, I have nothing to add to that. I, um, but yeah, other, other than just to, you know, say he'll be missed obviously. And again, you know, much as you said, if, uh, folks out there, if you can maybe spare yourself one Blu-ray <laughs> this week, just to chip yep. in and help out, I'm sure it would be very much appreciated. And, uh, you know, he was one of us. So, yeah. Uh, and, um, and sorry to interrupt. And I know I'm, I apologize to be rambling on this. It's just, no, it's, no, it's not weird. at all. And, um, you know, emotional. Uh, uh, but there's, when you say he's one of us, um, there's a video that John shared uh, recently that was posted by Brandon uh, a while back <clears throat> where uh, he, he put on a Michael Myers mask and, yep. <laughs> and scared the nurses. Which um, was amazing. <laughs> and it's super funny. But, but to me, that video more than anything else, really hits home what you just said. Like when you see him do that, you're like, Oh yeah, he's one of us. He's like, that's somebody I could go hang out with. <laughs> like, that's, we see things eye to eye. Um, and the nurse's well, reaction, the whole, you know, seeing something like that, man, it was always the, whenever you see somebody battling something like that, no matter how bleak it might look at the outset, there's always the hope that they're going to pull through and because you know their story, then, you know, you just, you, you pull for them that much more, especially when you get to know somebody, even if it's in an online setting. And he was somebody who, yeah, you're absolutely right. You watch that video and it's like, damn it. I, 
I want to buy that guy a beer one day. You know, I want to hang out with that guy. Yeah. But, you know, unfortunately, I mean, you know, the world is sometimes a shitty place. And that's not, you know, we're not going to be able to share a beer with that dude. But we can certainly raise one in his honor. So, yeah, um, yeah for sure. And we can, you know, we can, if you can help out his family even a little bit, again, like I said, I'm sure it will be much appreciated. So, yep. No, I, uh, I agree. And, you know, when the horror community loses someone, we, one thing I love about the horror community is we rally together, you know, years ago. Um, I'm sure many people will remember Dustin Pace. Yeah. Uh, the illustrator, um, you know, uh, uh Duddy, Duddy, right? Duddy in motion. Yeah. Um, and when, when he passed away, um, you know, there was a, a great rally cry. There was a, you know, we watched a movie in his honor and kind of live tweeted, um, Screamcast released a pin that he designed, uh, the pumpkin head, uh, enamel pin, one of the very few enamel pins I've ever purchased <laughs> in honor of, uh, Dustin Pace. So I think it's really cool that we live in a community where we don't, you know, the people we love in this community, we don't forget and we support and we share their stories. Um, and, and in a way they, they live on through that. And I think what's important right now is that we do what we're doing, uh, share his story, um, make sure his family's taken care of as well as they can be, uh, as they navigate this uh, horrific time and, um, you know, move, move forward and keep that, keep that memory alive. I agree. Uh, so again, I, <laughs> it feels like we're, you know, and it shouldn't, here's the thing. Like I know I started, it's obvious that it's a little bit emotional, you know, we're, we're a little bit grim. We're a little bit downbeat right now, but at the same time, like, you know, I, this shouldn't be looked at as a downbeat way to begin the show. You know, it's, it's, you know, considered a celebration of the man. Uh, I think every, yep. you know, every photo I ever saw of the man, you know, and like you said, he was obviously, he was very honest about, you know, uh, his struggles, but did you ever see a picture of the man where he wasn't smiling where he wasn't <laughs> grinning? You know, I, yeah, he, he, uh, yeah, no, there, he had a sense of humor about him and, and, a positivity, to his outlook that never wavered regardless of what he was going through. And, and that is, that's something that, that all of us can learn from. <laughs> I agree. All right. So Sarah, I, <laughs> yeah, we can, we can go ahead and move on, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, no, it's just, it, it feels like there's, there's so much more to say and nothing more to say at all, you know, as yeah. far as like just the century goes. So I don't know. It's a weird thing to talk about again in this setting, but uh, a necessary one, I think. And again, folks out there, we are going to post in our show notes or just go on our Twitter. You know, we're going to post it everywhere, but just make certain to hit that GoFundMe up. Anyway, Paul, this yes. is the opening of a podcast <laughs> where we usually talk about movies and whatnot. It is. Can I ask, what have you seen recently, man? Uh, let's try and pick a couple of movies out and maybe chat about them for the next 30 minutes or so. I say 30 <laughs> minutes or so. You know, I know. It's going to be like an hour, hour and a quarter. We'll see how well, it goes. It, it's it's weird, though, because I this week I watched a lot of movies, a lot of genre movies, but but not many horror movies. A lot of what I would call genre adjacent movies. Um. I do have one, which I'm going to start with the ones that aren't like as horror. It, it, it would be off brand of me not to talk about a non-horror movie at this part. Well, Paul, right? considering what I got coming up, uh, <laughs> you're, you're, you're going to be okay, man. Trust okay, me. Okay. The, the first one I want to talk about, um, 
because I had never seen it and it really blew me away is uh, Thief, Michael Mann's Thief. Wow, that's a great one, man. I had never seen it. Um, it is not a horror movie, <laughs> but it is it's genre. I mean, it is definitely a genre film. Um, and it it has moments of horror, I would say. Um, but the biggest thing I'd say, so um, uh, again, in keeping with my plugging of a, a podcast that isn't this one, uh, Screen Drafts uh, recently did a Jerry Bruckheimer draft. Um, and Jerry, and I didn't know that Jerry Bruckheimer, uh, produced Thief. Uh, I always equated Bruckheimer to movies like Con Air and The Rock and Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, and then you watch, uh, Thief and you're like, okay, so Bruckheimer had his hands in some, uh, interesting stuff. Um, but yeah, this movie is above all else, a mood. Um, it is, it's quiet and introspective um james khan at his absolute best uh probably my favorite james khan performance um he's a thief uh, a very very skilled uh safe cracker um and he's sort of self-employed he doesn't work for crime conglomerates he just sort of chooses a job that he finds suitable uh does it and and gets the winnings and doesn't have to deal with people he doesn't trust or being double crossed uh and he comes under the uh sort of attention of a local crime boss who wants to employ him to do very very big jobs that could potentially pay out and allow him to retire um, and he's convinced to do sort of, you know, the plot line of the one big job all the while. And it's really interesting uh, because, Jinx, you're well aware of my love and adoration for The Stepfather, right? I've I've heard you like it. Yes. I like The Stepfather quite a bit. Uh, Thief is actually very, very like in line with what The Stepfather is about. Uh, in okay, fact, now, I think they, now I think I've they seen make an movies. interesting double feature. <laughs> I've seen both uh, movies, but I'm very interested in this case. Okay. I'm leaning forward so, into the microphone. So. The reason why is James Kahn's whole thing is he wants to create the perfect sort of like nuclear American family. Okay. Um, he, is, he is attempting to achieve his own version of the American dream. That's what he wants. Um, he, he has no, the reason he wants to see all this money and, and, and sort of get millions of dollars is he wants a house in the suburbs with a wife, with children and a comfortable, boring existence. That is what he wants because that is what he has been raised to believe is the pinnacle of American life. Um, and he's so focused on that. Uh, that he and 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 getting the components of that equation in place, which is really what the movie is, like he's he needs a kid. Well, the woman he he finds a woman that's willing to go along with him, uh, who's sort of had a shady past with men and and issues before. She can't bear children. Okay, cool, problem solved. I'll go adopt. Uh, so he shows up to adopt a kid. And he's just kind of like, okay, I want a kid, and they're like, well, no, it doesn't really work like that. And he sort of flips out and loses his cool. Because things, you know, he's trying to get the things he knows he needs to live that sort of American dream. But the the institution of America won't give them to him. Uh, so he has to find other ways of acquiring them. Uh, so I, I see it as a spiritual sort of 
brother or sister film to the stepfather in that way, because both are about protagonists that um, are incredibly flawed and, uh, you know, are willing to kind of break the law and go outside of the box to collect those things that they think will give them the, the normal American life that, that they've been so taught to believe is what they should want. Um, so I found that like a really interesting thing because I did not expect that. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's a fantastic read. I need to rewatch it with that lens. Um, I love the movie. I, you know, it's weird. Usually when we see these filmmakers whose later work we're obviously, you know, super familiar with there, it's always fun to go back to their early works and see where they came from, you know, to, to sort of see their, uh, you know, if they are a bit of a, and I know you hate the term, I, I'm not a fan either, but like if they are, you know, what one would call an auteur to see like sure, sort of sure. their style, you know, their aesthetic in yeah. its infancy. The thing about Thief is that is a filmmaker who arrived fully formed. Yeah. Like that, that is not a stepping stone movie to something later. That's, that's, that's pure Michael Mann in that, you know, in that two hours. Um, you know, and it's just, and I kind of, honestly, I got to say, like Michael Mann eventually evolved and in the maybe a filmmaker that I'm not so excited about anymore, but my God, when the man hit back in the day, like he, he had one hell of a run there for about 10 or 15 years where he just killed it. Um, yeah, I would, I would agree. I, I mean, Thief for me, for my money, I mean, I think it's my favorite Michael Mann film. <laughs> which is rare that the first film a filmmaker makes is my favorite, but I, I really, out of all the, I haven't seen them all, but I think you know, it's, it's wonderful. I, I would I put really it, it. Yeah. I would put it just behind like public enemies and black hat, you know, just like a notch below. Um, <laughs> I said that with you're a terrible. straight face. I, I was going to say, I hope I deserve you're kidding. <laughs> I hope you're kidding. I'll be really no. quiet until you tell me you're kidding. <laughs> Everyone's no, entitled to their own opinion. No, they're not. Those movies are terrible. Um, no, I, man, I mean, his early stuff, like Thief and Manhunter, and obviously, like, Heat is just a, a fucking masterpiece. Um, but even, you know, I, I will yeah. say, even when he started to... You know, it's easy to shit on Public Enemies and Black Hat for their terrible digital photography. Um, and that's only because both movies have really terrible digital photography. But, you know, at the same time, he, he was also mucking about with digital uh, when he did Miami Vice. And I think Miami Vice is actually a really fucking good movie. I, um, I haven't seen it yet, so I got to check it out. You know, what he does so interesting for me uh, with that movie is he... You know, he was embracing digital when digital didn't really look like digital does now. Like it was obviously digital, right? But everybody right. wanted to make it look like film. And it just didn't back then. If you were in the mid-aughts and somebody, you know, like pre-red, like pre-Steven Soderbergh fucking around with the red on Che, like that was the first time I was like, okay, maybe they have something here, you know? Yeah. Um, no, but it, it seemed like everybody tried to make digital look like film, and in the mid-aughts, that shit just wasn't happening. And as a result, everything just really looked it, – it, it looked cheap and wrong. And what I appreciated about Michael Mann when he did Miami Vice, he embraced what digital looked like and just went that way with it and said, okay, this is what it is, and we're just going to lean into that. And as a result, like he – 
made it look really attractive in its own way and kind of great. And he, he told like this big budget story, but he just told it in a very, you know, it had a very different sort of visual palette than we had seen from the man up until that point, even though it was calling back the arguably the thing that he's probably best known for. Um, aside from maybe heat, but no, I love Miami Vice. I, I love a lot of his movies, man. Like I, one of my favorite movie going experiences from childhood was uh, my parents taking me on a school night to go see the last of the Mohicans, which I think is just fucking excellent. Um, yeah. But no thief. I, you know, again, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, that's an early entry in the man's, uh, you know, the man's filmography, but it's no lesser for it. Like it's, it's every bit as good as his, you know, better works. Yeah, no, and the only other thing I want to call out about Heat or Heat <laughs> Thief is uh, the supporting cast is so damn good and interesting, <laughs> and it also is like so. So Willie Nelson is in it, and he shows up to be like this, and it's like heartbreaking. Like he's in like two scenes, and it's like incredibly emotional, and Willie N- Nelson just absolutely kills it. Tuesday Weld is sort of the romantic interest and, and she's good. Uh, and I liked her quite a bit as well. And, um, uh, the two supporting actors though, that really caught me off guard is Jim Belushi. Uh, really you watch this movie and you're like, man, this guy should have had like a huge career as like a character actor in genre films. He should have, he should have feel like that. He's much better there than in comedies. Like, I, I don't know. Like, he just fe- he felt more at home in this kind of movie. And, and what he did worked really well and how he played off of Khan. And just, I don't know. He just it felt more natural to me, if that makes sense. He is such a damn good actor. You're absolutely right. If he had, if somebody had told him at the very beginning, like, look, don't do, you're, you're not your brother, you know? Right. Don't don't do that. And I part of part of me wonders if it's his fault, and part of me wonders if it's you know that industry that was trying to remold him into his brother, you know, and um, you know, which in a way, like he he never really did anything that I would say really sort of scraped up against what his brother did. But you could tell, like they wanted him to be funnier than maybe he was uh, naturally. But he, you're right, like whenever he's in a supporting role. He's fucking great. Whenever he's in yeah. like a straightforward drama or, you know, even something uh, kind of fun and actioning. What was that movie he did? Um, ah, damn it. I'm going to forget. Where he played like uh, the, was it called The Principal? Maybe. Um, I don't know. I mean. I, but I was, it's just kind of an action drama. He, and it's like those kinds of roles. He's going to, fuck, he was great in uh just a couple of years ago in Twin Peaks, the return, like I hadn't seen him in ages and he popped up in that and just killed it. And he's, he's good when he shows up. I mean, like, um, and he's, he's got a few like decent supporting roles that, that cater to that, that are like action comedy roles. Like, like he's good in, um, uh, red heat. Like he's fun in that movie. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's not amazing, but it's like fun. I don't know. But like, it, it's, when you watch this movie, it, it just I, it makes me wish that he had committed more to, yeah, like crime action, yes, like character roles, um, you know, and and you also get like Robert Prosky is the villain in this, and like it's so <laughs> weird to see like Grandpa Fred the the vampire newscaster from Gremlins two as like the heavy. 
in this like you know as like the the crime boss in this movie it's just so bizarre um but i loved it i loved every second of it so yeah thief was was great that was a great watch yeah, it's a good movie. I'm I'm sorry. Now that we're on the uh, Jim Belushi train, like I have to look up some of his stuff. And <laughs> yeah, I, he was in Thief, but then they also plugged him into like Trading Places, and uh, obviously it looked like, shit. He did two years on Saturday Night Live. I don't know that I ever knew that. Um, but then you know he was in uh, Jumpin' Jack Flash. Uh, he was in Little Shop of Horrors. Aha! Oh yeah, was, yeah, yeah. Little Shop. It was the principal. Uh, that I was thinking of. He did it before Red Heat. Uh, a teacher is assigned to be the principal of a violent and crime-ridden high school. Uh, it was he and Louis Gossett Jr. Um, then he did Red Heat, who's Harry Crumb, uh, Canine. I I loved Canine as a kid. I have no idea if it would hold up now, but uh, I remember <laughs> loving Mr. Destiny when I was a kid, you know? Uh, oh, yeah. Sue, but yeah, you're right. I, I kind of wish he had gone sort of like the... Uh, I wish he'd had a harder edge, you know, uh, because I think he could have nailed it. And, you know, he did a couple of times, but, you know, so it goes. Thief, Thief is really great. Paul, speaking of, like, Thief and, like, you know, which is kind of a smaller movie, um, you may not have heard of this. When it hit streaming recently, it's this little indie flick. It hasn't gotten much in the way of press. Uh, Justice League, the Zack Snyder cut. Um, I've never, I haven't heard of it. Is it, uh... Is this on Netflix or? Uh, it's on HBO Max. Okay. Um, right. You know, they, I think they were sort of rolling the dice. And on... it's directed by who? <laughs> Zach Snyder? Snydor? Yeah. Is that who it yeah. is? Snydor. All right, I'll, I'll drop the act. I've no, it's fine. No, it's my, it's my <laughs> fault. It's my fault. I led us there, you know. Um, no, man, it's funny. Um, the thing about this movie is that it's four hours long. Mm-hmm. And the other thing about this movie is that it in no way feels like it's four hours long. Um, it it really clicks by, and I got to tell you, man, this this you know, forgetting all of the controversy surrounding like the release of this movie, the making of the movie, and you know Snyder and Whedon and DC and you know, and obviously the 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 sort of battle between people who hate Snyder and the people who who love him, you know, have been dubbed like Snyder bros and like all of that shit. And, you know, the, the, the pockets of fandom of his that are like really great and supportive and have done great things and the pockets of fandom that are toxic as all hell and feel entitled to whatever the fuck they want, apparently. Uh, and, and they've been rewarded for it, which is, I'm very curious to see what the fallout of that is going to be, no matter how great it is. That this guy got to see out his vision, which I think is a good thing, but who, um, well, I think we've already seen it a little bit. I think somebody, I don't know if you saw that tweet. It was uh, bandied around a little bit, bandied about, like, when it came out with somebody was like, okay, now they need to restore the Snyderverse. You know, first they gave us what we deserve. Paul, I'm going to repeat that. First <laughs> they gave us deserve. what we deserve. Now they're going to give us what we want. And it's like, you little fuck, you, you, I want to dislike the movie because of you. You know, like, you, you, you little pipsqueak fuck. Like, I just... <laughs> Oh God, I hate that shit. Anyway, all of that aside, all of that aside, now that I've covered it all, um, (laughs) just focused on the movie itself. Like I, you know, I, I I think we've talked about it a little bit on the podcast before. I know I've talked about it with Feeney uh, on one of his appearances here. I'm not the biggest fan of Snyder's take on those characters because I thought that he, uh, 
you know, when it comes to the, the, the big three, the big three of DC, you know, you have Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman, right? I always felt he had kind of like a fundamental misunderstanding of who Superman was as a character. I, I, I felt like he maybe kind of got Wonder Woman, but then he just made her a little more bloodthirsty, which is kind of, you know, it's like, God, dude, what? And then with Batman, it's kind of like, well, yeah, that's pretty much who Batman has been in the movies. You know, that's that's the Frank Miller Batman that everybody keeps going back to that fucking well. Um, but <laughs> but it's like it, it just bums me out that it's like, you know, there is a character in the comics where because he had his parents killed in front of him, he refuses to kill. You know, is, does anybody want to tackle that version of the character? I felt like Nolan did early on, and, and he, even he at a certain point was probably kind of like, eh, fuck it. Um, you know, it just, it, so, as a result, I, I and here's the thing, I like Snyder. I think Dawn of the Dead is great. I I really liked his 300. I fucking love Watchmen. Um, Sucker Punch, I think, is a lot of fun. And, you know, I it doesn't fully connect with me, but I think there's more going on in that movie than people often give it credit for. When it comes to Man of Steel, again, just because that's not the character that I know, the movie kind of kept me at arm's length, no matter how very well made it was. Uh, Batman versus Superman, the theatrical cut, I think was kind of a mess. The ultimate edition of the movie, I think, was actually a damn sight better. Uh, weirdly enough, adding 30 minutes onto it and making it a three-hour film somehow improved its pace. You know, uh, the mm-hmm. theatrical cut is 30 minutes shorter and a complete slog. The three-hour cut clips by at a pretty damn good pace. Uh, but again, you know, I had those issues with Superman and having those two characters fight. And, you know, it just it, – it kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. But, you know, there was no way that, that the Snyder cut, after it's been – you know, we've heard people talk about it for years and years and years. You know, finally, HBO Max, you know, uh, helped to bring the thing to life by sinking $70 million into it. And they're premiering it as this six or seven chapter, like, massive event film, right? Four fucking hours, Paul. There was going to be no way that I wasn't going to watch this movie, right? Mm-hmm. In advance of it popping up, I rewatched Man of Steel and Batman vs. Superman, and I realized something. Part of my problem with those movies is the fact that they ran pretty much parallel to the rise of all of the Marvel movies. And the Marvel movies, they all take place in the same continuity, which was kind of a first at that level. And there's a fidelity to the characters on the page that comes across in those movies. You know, Captain, yeah, they might be different stories. There might be tweaks. There, you know, there, there are certain necessities of adaptation in play there. Of course, there'd have to be, right? But the Captain America on screen is the Captain America on the page. You know, the Iron Man, mm-hmm. the Black Widow, so on and so forth. There was something about like, okay, now that DC was going to get in on that game and they were going to throw all of their characters into the same sandbox and play with them. It's like, great. Now we get to see those characters. Now we get to get a build up to Justice League. And now we get like those versions of the characters interacting with one another, right? And then we get these weird like these deconstructions of those characters, you know, that's very dark and grim and gritty and just not what I'm used to. And I think that was kind of the disconnect for me. The, the, the reason I couldn't appreciate those movies, 
with my expectations in place and the fact that they are sort of acknowledging, you know, the multiverse in DC, they're going to I think they're bringing back Keaton's Batman from another universe and they're acknowledging like I think the television's, you know, stuff that CW is doing did uh you know, Crisis on Infinite Earths, which is, uh, you know, acknowledging that there are different Earths and basically everything that you've ever seen that's been based on DC exists. It's just in this universe or that reality or here or there or whatever. Between those two things, I was able to rewatch in advance of Justice League, Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman and appreciate those movies for what they are rather than what I wanted them to be. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, as somebody said it the other day, they were like, you know, Zack Snyder's Superman reminds me of Rob Zombie's Michael Myers. Both seem to have this massive misunderstanding of the characters, but by God, they stick to their guns. You know, like they 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 follow it through. You know, um, and the same the same is kind of true of Snyder's Superman. It goes through the 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 Snyder cut of Justice League, where it's like, you know, by the end of it, there is. There are a couple of moments where it's kind of like, oh, he's back. Superman's back. Yay. Oh, he's still he's still a mean son of a bitch. OK, that's uh, that's a choice. That's something right there. All right, cool. Yeah. Hey, whatever. This is this is the Superman of this world. I get it. Right. OK, uh, but no, no. All of that aside, what's absolutely amazing to me is that the difference between the theatrical cut of Justice League that we got and the Snyder cut, the director's cut, the four-hour, you know, uh, uh, event movie that this thing is, I, I've never seen anything like it. Generally, when you see a director's cut, even if the changes were massive, it's still recognizable. You know, I remember, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but Daredevil, the Ben Affleck movie from 2002. Like, yeah, theatrical cut of that movie is pretty fucking lousy, right? Um, the director's cut, which adds 30 minutes back into it is actually quite a bit better. Uh, it's still got its flaws, man, but it's, you know, 30 minutes that should change the movie in massive ways, but it really doesn't. It's still essentially the same movie. It's, there's just more and that more makes it better. The two justice leagues are simply just two entirely different films completely. You have different villains. You have a different story. Uh, I mean, the core is kind of the same, but I've never seen anything like it where the, the the watching the four hour cut was akin to just watching a brand new movie. Like I had no idea what was going to happen. It was a complete surprise from scene to scene to scene. I don't expect I'll ever watch the Whedon cut again and what he did to it. Um, I don't know how many times I'll watch the four hour cut either because it's four fucking hours. But what I will say is this. If you can buy into what Snyder was trying to do with Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman, which is to treat these characters like gods and fallen gods at that at times, and to get sort of mixed up in its super serious, grim and gritty take on these characters, then, man, you're going to love Justice League. Like, it, it pays that off in spades. And um, it, it's great. It, it, it has a lot of heart. Um the cyborg character, which is, uh, who was kind of sidelined in the Whedon cut, uh, his part was basically trimmed to, you know, ribbons, uh, in the, in the four hour cut. He's, he's kind of the heart of the movie. Um, mm. the performances are better. Um, what amazed me is that, yeah, they gave him 70 million to finish it, but on some level I expected the movie to be a little roughshod, uh, you know, with the special effects, I felt like maybe it wouldn't be fully polished. 
Nope. It is it is ready for theaters if they ever elect to put it out, which uh, if they do, I'd love to see an IMAX just to see what the weird ass ratio would look like on a proper screen. Because I got to tell you on a widescreen television, watching it four by three, it was a little weird for about two or three minutes, but eventually you just kind of go with it. And then, you know, it's no big deal whatsoever. But, you know, I was talking to a friend about it. Uh, He said, you know, he couldn't remember a single thing about the 2017 film. And in the first hour of the Snyder movie, there were already a handful of sequences, which were just absolute standouts. And I'm not even talking about action stuff. I mean, there is, um, there's this really great early scene with the Aquaman character who, you know, is kind of single handedly, uh, uh, keeping this village alive. And, you know, when he goes back into the water, there's this amazing sequence where these women walk down to the water, you know, and sort of sing this song, like they're all harmonizing together. And it's, it holds on that for about a minute or a minute and a half. And it's like any other would be blockbuster movie would trim shit like this. But I love that he just kind of focuses on stuff like that. And, you know, in, in making a four hour movie, it's really allowed to breathe. And it feels like that world all of a sudden now is real and you're immersed in it. And, uh, you know, somebody noted, they were like, you know, with his earlier movies, people always knocked him because his characterization suffers, you know, uh, laid against you know the action and the visuals but they noted it as a positive with uh his you know justice league cut simply because they were like well maybe he just needs more time you know give him four hours and then all of a sudden you know the characters don't suffer you know and it does feel like a real lived-in world and these do feel like three-dimensional people even for all of the craziness and the madness of the plot and you know the superheroics of it all so i don't know i'm rambling at this point i will just say it I was kind of bracing myself, expecting it to be, uh, you know, just maybe kind of an indulgent shit fest of a superhero flick. And I was very surprised to see that it was anything but. Yeah, I mean, I as somebody, um, I could not be more outside looking in with this because I haven't seen, I haven't even seen Man of Steel. So I, don't, <laughs> I couldn't. I probably couldn't jump into uh, this cut. In fact, my question would be if I do decide to watch all these movies, do I need to watch both cuts of justice league? Like, or do I just skip this uh, shitty uh, theatrical cut from what I'm hearing and go straight to the, uh, the true Snyder vision? Um, Yeah. I mean, absolutely that, because again, you know, the theatrical cut is, it's an entirely different movie and it's just, it's, it's there's a cheapness to it. There's a cheapness to the storytelling. Like it's, it's, Mm. you know, if it tells you anything and we know that Joss Whedon is a fucking asshole at this point, this is no surprise, but if it tells you anything, there's an opening montage that the credits play over. Um, and which is actually kind of a nice sequence in its way. Um, uh, uh, but there, there is, and it's all slow motion, and you see basically what the world is like after, spoiler alert, uh, Superman has died. Um, and, yeah, which if you've seen the trailer for Justice League, I mean, you, you've seen that, so I, I hope I haven't spoiled anything for you. But Well, uh, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't know he died, but I also know he's like in the movie, so I'm guessing he comes back. So I guess <laughs> it's probably not 
it's it's a super yeah. emotionally <laughs> crushing blow. <laughs> but you know, in in the theatrical cut, if it tells you anything, um, it it opens with like cell phone footage of Superman with that awful CG lip thing that I'm sure you've seen online because uh, yeah, I've seen the CG lip. Yeah, yeah, and then it goes immediately from that to this uh, slow motion montage of what Gotham and Metropolis are like in Superman's absence. And some of it is, you know, kind of very beautifully shot and really interesting. But there is a moment, man, where it focuses on a homeless man holding a sign that says, I tried. Paul, that image is laid underneath Whedon's credit on the film. Oh, wow. And it's like, dude. Like, if you're nice. telling me in the first three minutes, like, well, I did my best, folks. You know, it's just like, holy shit, you know? <clears throat> yeah, that's uh, um, that's that's messed up. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll uh, I will watch these movies eventually. It's I don't know when um, because they're all so long. I mean, all of them are long. Like, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm somebody now because I watch movies at night after my kids go to bed. And I have to admit, a big determiner of what I can watch is runtime. Like, I'll look at a back of a movie and be like, oh, over two hours, that's a no-go. You know, I, I got to go oh, with, well. like... <laughs> and and I looked at Man of Steel, two and a half hours. Batman v Superman, it's over, like, three hours long. I'm like, I don't know when I'm going to ever have time so to would, watch would, these movies. I would say one thing. Especially with Justice League... But even with Batman versus Superman, Man of Steel, you're going to have to bite the bullet and just watch a two hour and 20 minute movie if you can. But with Batman versus Superman and Justice League, especially, you could break up those viewings yeah. into segments yeah, and it and it wouldn't be, you know, it, it wouldn't hurt the viewing of the movie. It would be like almost. You know, comic books do the same thing. You know, you you can read the graphic novel collection of all six issues, which tell one story, or you can read it in floppies, installment by installment at your own pace, you know? Um, So with Batman versus Superman, watch the first hour and a half, and then, yeah, yeah, now that I'm thinking about it, you could, yeah, watch the first half of it, stop, next night, watch the other half. And then the great thing about Justice League is, is that it's cut up into like 30 to 45 minute long chapters. So... I'll uh, yeah. I'll, Otherwise, I'll, yeah, I'll man, try. that's 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 ten hours. <laughs> that's ten hours of movie viewing. Now, I will say this: in all fairness, Paul, like, if you're not a big superhero movie fan to begin with, there's probably no need for you to rush out and watch. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll watch them eventually. I, 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 yeah, like we've talked about before. Like, I, I enjoy superhero movies. I'm not; they're just not my thing. So, like, I. Yeah, it'll happen. It'll happen eventually. And I I do think it's the one thing I'll say is I do think it's cool anytime like a creator who didn't get to like realize their vision, like gets a chance to go back and sort of like, uh, like fix that, you know, George Lucas, notwithstanding, um, it's generally a good thing. Uh, so I'm, I'm happy for fans of the franchise, like people who like that movie. It's, it's, I'm, it's really cool that they're able to see this version of it. Um, you know, and I'm happy for Zack Snyder who went through like a a lot of hell in his life. And I, I think it's cool that he's able to, I'm hoping this is like really cathartic for him, you know, getting to go back and actually finish this movie and having it be really well received. Cause it it feels like he received a whole lot of shit (laughs) at the time of these movies, original releases, 
Yes. So it's interesting now that history is kind of rewriting or being rewritten around uh, Zack Snyder's input to these movies. And I got to admit, like part of what kept me away was all of that negativity. I was like, oh, well, they're not from what I'm hearing. They're not that good anyway. So I guess I'll just avoid them. Um, so, you know, now I have a reason to kind of go back and check them out. Paul, I will say this. You might be better attuned to liking Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman because you're not necessarily yeah. attached to those characters in such a way. Because that's what I had to sort of get past. And now, sure. again, accepting them on their own terms, I think both movies are actually quite good. Uh, they're not without their problems, but it, watching them this time around, I really, really enjoyed them. So, okay. yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I came around to the point where i was able to reappraise them and i'm glad that i enjoyed his justice league and i think it was you know you noted you hoped it was cathartic for him i mean the 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 first card before the credits at the very very end of this thing uh it's you know uh it's in uh it's in memory of his daughter so um yeah you know which i think is very cool so yeah yeah, good for him i'm i'm glad but at the same time you know it's weird as hell man like by all accounts you know, HBO Max, you know, the subscriptions and the numbers and the the early crashing on the site, you know, from people logging on at once to try and watch this thing and all of the goodwill that's sort of come out of this. You know, what happens on Monday after the 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 it's essential like essentially it's opening weekend, you know, what happens? DC is coming out and saying after it just it blows my mind, man. After a weekend of people being jazzed about this thing and fucking loving it and saying like, oh my God, what if what if they could actually do more of his vision? Because he had planned two more movies. Like he had a five film plan uh, and people were talking like, well, okay, they're doing their own continuity with theatrical films, but maybe, maybe he could do something for HBO Max. And oh, maybe David Iyer could get to do his kind of uh, Suicide Squad. Now, ooh, what if, what if, what if? And there was all this like excitement building because like, hey – isn't it cool that Warner Brothers actually did this thing? You know, and it, it wasn't in the sort of toxic, like, you know, we deserve this sort of way. It was people being more like, hey, what if, you know, wouldn't that be neat? Wouldn't that be cool? And then you know, fucking, you know, way to read the room, Warner Brothers, the Monday after your opening weekend, you know, one of their execs does this interview where they were like, uh, David Iyer will not have his cut of Suicide Squad. There will be no more <clears throat> Zack Snyder, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, well, uh, that's that's great, you fucking morons. Like, I understand <laughs> yeah. making those decisions. I understand not dumping hundreds of millions of dollars more into finishing Zack Snyder's five-film run just for the purposes of having content for HBO Max. That makes <laughs> sense. I understand them not wanting to dump money no, into yeah, David Iyer's cut of Suicide Squad because it's it's bad idea (laughs) yeah right right well but don't don't shit on your fans after you know you you finally turned the tide a little bit and gotten people back on your side after taking a lot of hell you know from fans for some of your other decisions and then you so the way you meet the excitement of your fan base is to immediately say no 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 like that just it's it's so fuck it, that to me like perfectly underscores <laughs> how important a Kevin Feige type is to an enterprise like sure. a, a big yeah. massive you know cinematic universe you know no, I Marvel Marvel has that guy DC does not you know yep no I agree I agree 
So this is a horror podcast. Uh, it is. Uh, I <laughs> I can. So I have t- two things I just want to mention, and I can be really quick. Um, no, so that's we can okay. Get on to the movie, dude. We're only seven uh, minutes in. Like at that's this not point, bad. At this point, like <laughs> listeners know the deal. Paul, you got two more to talk about. Okay. I said knock them out. Man. So the one I want to talk about, it's not a horror movie, but it's going to bring us back to horror because it went to a horror place I was very surprised by. And this was a movie I avoided because I heard it wasn't that great. And I watched it with my uh, kids on a movie night. Um, It is the new Tomb Raider from 2018. Surprisingly great. Okay. I got to say right, right here, right now. What the fuck? That movie was great. Like it was so fun. And so like, uh okay alicia vikander uh, is that how you say your name vikander vikander i don't know uh, probably pronounce it wrong. yes i think she was phenomenal as laura croft and also i really appreciate that the movie didn't like overly sexualize her yeah like the previous films did and the games do and like the biggest complaint i saw online was like oh the games are better and i'm like you know what i not everyone plays i mean Okay, I get that there's an audience that plays the games that's going to care about that adaptation, but the bulk of people who watch these movies are never are are not people who played that game. So like when I was watching it, I was not thinking about the gameplay or what happens in the game. I was just watching this movie. Um and I adored it. It was it was a female it was Indiana Jones. It felt like Indiana Jones. It it's probably the most Indiana Jonesy movie I've seen. Like other than Indiana Jones, like it felt inc- like modern day. Um, and, you know, that was the same thought, Mike, because I just showed my kids Raiders of the Lost Ark and they saw that, too. And then this movie becomes a like crazy. And I guess I don't want to spoil it because it, it does have a pretty cool twist. Um, around what they're investigating because they're investigating something that's presented as supernatural Um, as like okay there's this evil queen that like could destroy the world um, and she's buried in this tomb and she has these this power to you know destroy the world so they're trying to find this hidden island with the secret tomb and sneak into the tomb and get past all the traps um, and 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 find this power you know in this sarcophagus Um, and the movie, the minute they go down into the tomb, which is probably, I mean, it's a short movie. One, I love that. It's like 90 some odd minutes. So it gets in, it gets out, it does its job. Um, the uh, Then when they get to the tomb, which is like halfway through, so they're in the tomb for like 40 minutes. Like it's not just a little thing at the end. Um, Walton Goggins is the villain. I mean, come on, this He's is great. So great. He's so good. And then they get to the the tomb, and it's a horror movie. It is a horror movie from the moment they step into that tomb. Um, and you get like skin melting off. You get people impaled by spikes. I know I showed this to, to my children, but it's fun. It was an adventure movie, and they liked it. It <laughs> did terrify them. Like it really scared them. Um, and I just the whole time I'm like, why the hell? Did this? Did people did not tell me to watch this? Because I, when it came out, everyone was like, "Eh, lackluster, not that great," you know, whatever. I looked at my letterbox, uh, the people I follow, and I swear it's like people either gave it two stars or they gave it four stars. <laughs> like it seems like there's this huge break, and some of the reviews I could not disagree with more. 
like I could not. I mean, I, I don't want to call people out that I follow and like call so, them out. I mean, it's call cool. We're out, all re- no, I'm not going to. But it's yeah. cool. We all have our own opinions. I'm sure they would call me out for liking something that is like a lot of the reviews are sort of like, oh, it's it's just it's very mundane. It's very typical. You've seen this movie before. I'm like, okay, yeah, oh, but you could you could say that about any movie. I'm sorry. Like if a movie does something that we've we've it's seen just, and liked before, and it's fun and it's good. Like, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And we need to constantly reinvent cinema so that way it's relevant. You know, my kids, I think, had a, I mean, this might be blasphemous to say, but I think they had a better time watching a young woman be Indiana Jones than watching Harrison Ford be Indiana Jones. That only makes complete sense. Yeah. So I'm like, this is a good thing. Like, and, and it was really well done. I loved that there was a sort of male protagonist with her that was not a romantic interest. I thought that was really cool. So it like, wasn't about any sort of like romance. It was just about the adventure and the action. And it felt a lot more like empowering and it, and it gave the Laura Croft character a little bit more agency, even though there is a lot of dependency on like her finding her father in it and all these different things, but it's very much her story. Um, and I just, and, and it sets up a wider world. It sets up kind of a, it's, it's sort of a combination between Indiana Jones and James Bond is what it felt like because the James Bond stuff is sort of the, 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 uh, the, com- the conglomerate company corporation thing she's a part of that she's going to inherit. And there's a lot of like espionage and bad guys hidden in the wings. And it sets up this bigger world sort of movie adventure that was obviously intended to become uh, a, a fairly large, uh, franchise and i'm guessing that based on the performance of the film that's not going to happen which is really disappointing no no actually it's funny that you talked about the horror elements in the final third i will be a little disheartened if when we get the sequel that is apparently coming mm. we won't get a little more horror in it because the person who is directing it is ben wheatley oh okay so it is co- okay great i didn't yep. I, i'll admit i did not research this at all <laughs> but given that it was like three years ago and I haven't heard anything and I remember hearing like lukewarm reviews and stuff, I just wondered, oh, I ho- I wonder if this was something they opted not to continue. But I'm very excited that they're doing sequels. So anyway, um, I just I just wanted to plug that movie because I don't think and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not listening to the right people, but I just don't hear this movie talked about a whole lot. Um, I feel like it kind of came and went. And I had bought it um, like Black Friday at some point for like five bucks. So it was sitting on my shelf and movie night came around and I was like, oh, this is PG-13. My kids can watch PG-13. It's an adventure movie. Let's give it a go. And it, I thought it was a ton of fun. No, I, man, I agree with you. I think that movie is a blast and it, it, you know, there's that kind of breed of big tentpole action movie that due to its marketing, maybe due to the reception, due to whatever, I always kind of let slip through my fingers. I never bother seeing it on the big screen. And, you know, people inevitably, much as you mentioned with this one, you know, they kind of piss on it. And then at a certain point, you know, with certain movies, I hear like these little rumblings that, no, this movie is actually great. Don't listen to everybody else. This is actually, so. John Carter is actually a great movie. The Lone Ranger is surprisingly a blast. Lara Croft Tomb Raider is actually damned good, you know? And so this this is, yeah, this is totally one of those movies, man, where I, I didn't get to see it on the big screen. I kind of hate that because when I watched it on video, 
it knocked my socks off, man. Like, I, I thought it was a complete blast. It's so much better than the previous movies that came out. They made Laura a real, like, even for all the crazy stuff that she's able to do in the movie, she feels like a real person in it. And I didn't get that from the Angelina Jolie character. Like, she felt like, you know, the movie was treating her like a goddess, and she was never really, like, a real person in those movies. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, there's kind of, like, an, an every-person quality to... Uh, Alicia Vikander's performance as that character in it, and you know, you're you're kind of you, know, you yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Not only in the type of story that it's telling, but in the type of protagonist, like very Indiana Jones in a way. You know, she sweats, she bleeds. You know, she can get beaten up. You know, uh, and yeah, as a result, like she's it's she's so much more impactful a character. I think I I had a blast with that movie. Uh, just hearing you talk about it again makes me want to watch it again. And uh, that sequel can't come soon enough. Yeah. Yeah. I, I loved it. <laughs> I, I really, really loved it and I, I'm going to revisit it and I'm going to encourage more and more people to watch it because I think it, it deserves it. So that's awesome. <laughs> All right. My final one, man, will be, um, uh, well, <laughs> I, I write that column for bloody disgusting phantom limbs, which sort of delves into, uh, the histories of unproduced remakes and sequels and whatnot for research for uh actually we're recording this on monday but by the time this goes up on friday hopefully the bloody disgusting article will be going out at around the same time um i'll be talking with tony burgess about the uh unmade sequel to pontypool uh that great kind of sort of zombie movie from 2008 which was based on his novel uh in preparation for that i rewatched pontypool and i guess have you seen the movie paul it is one of those movies that I've always wanted to see. I've just never seen it. I've never oh. caught it. I've never seen it. I I want to. It's high on my list because it, it feels like I'll love it. Like, it feels like it is everything I like in a movie. Um, And it's a zombie thing, and I love zombie movies. I just, I, there's, okay. And this is one of those cases where my weird thing, <laughs> where I like to get things on Blu-ray and watch them. And I, is there a Blu-ray? There is not a Blu-ray, Paul. So I think that's why that I haven't board. seen it. I think that's why is because there's no Blu-ray. So I'm like waiting for this Blu-ray to come. You know, you but. can if you want. You can hop onto Apple TV and rent it for like four bucks and watch it in a probably the highest def version you're going to be able to see that exists right now. Um, Paul, I got to tell you, you 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 need to go ahead and bite that bullet and just watch the damn movie. Uh, how it exists <laughs> now, because man, I'm telling you, you're missing out. It is. It's a do you what do you know about the plot? I want to know how much I'm able to talk about before Isn't it a guy holed up in like a radio station while a zombie apocalypse is happening or something? Is that wrong? Yes, that's kind of it. Um that's that's really what I know about it. See, okay, <laughs> I know so... nothing else. I mean, I I just know that people really like it and I it's like on my list. I just I just haven't ever Yeah, looking on Just Watch, it's you can't even rent it on like Amazon or Vudu. Nope, nope. It's that's... Apple TV or DVD, buddy. And um, that's why I can't see this thing. It's too hard to see it. No, it's not. <laughs> just buy the damn DVD, Paul. DVD. Yeah. It's, I swear. I don't buy DVD. I don't buy DVDs anymore. It's like a rule. I will reach through this fucking <laughs> microphone and throttle you if you do not give this movie a it's shot. Kind of true. Because... I hate buying DVDs. Ugh. Ugh. Come on. You know, I I hate what buying. Is this? I hate buying DVDs. I, I I'll tell you this. People I will refuse. Like you suck, Paul. <laughs> I will refuse 
to buy a DVD if I know there's a Blu-ray available. Now I will refuse to buy a Blu-ray if I know there's a 4K available. Paul, if, if there is only a DVD available, I'm buying that DVD. If there's only a bootleg available or it's only ever available to be watched on YouTube, then that's the important thing is watching the movie, is it not? It is, and I really want to see it. I'll see it eventually. <laughs> I'm getting angry here. I'm just. I will watch yeah. it. I'm. I'm not going to get the DVD. I. I'll find a way to watch it on Apple. Can you watch? Like, is Apple an app outside of just, or do you have to have Apple TV to do that? No, 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 no. It's like, uh, it's think of it like iTunes, man. You just uh, get the Apple TV app, and then if you have an iTunes account, then just you would rent it the same way you would there. Okay. Anyway. All right. Holy shit. I'm not going to spoil anything for you. It's a 13-year-old movie, but you don't know the coolest thing about it. And I want you to just discover that within the world of the movie itself. What I will say is, yes, it is essentially a one-location horror movie. It's, uh, you know, this shock jock guy named Grant Mazzy who's played by an amazing Stephen McCaddy. It's basically about one day on the job, uh, you know, with he and his cohorts, his producer and... uh, Oh, like his researcher and like she's kind of like a uh, like his assistant. And there what's kind of cool is it's a radio station that's sat inside of like this uh, abandoned church. Like they've refitted the church to be a uh, uh, like a radio station for the town, like this tiny town in Ontario called Pontypool. Anyway, his day at work just so happens to coincide with the zombie apocalypse happening. And it begins in their town. I think that would be a neat enough setup, like focusing on people inside of a radio station as he's getting reports. You're having to use your imagination based on what you're being told is happening in the town, imagining what's going on, right? So the world is ending right outside the the scope of the movie, and you're having to imagine right along with your lead characters just how bad it's getting, right? Right. But that alone would be a neat idea, and indeed the entire movie – could work as a stage play. In fact, I think it's been made into a radio play already. What makes the movie special is the thing that I can't reveal. Now, I'm I'm kind of a purist when it comes to Romero zombies. Like, if you're going to do that kind of zombie movie and you're going to tweak it, y- you, you need to be special, right? Yeah, Otherwise, I'm going to... I'm going to get yeah. real pissed real fast, right? Because that's, that's, that is a fucking perfect creation. You don't muck with perfection. Paul, Pontypool mucks with perfection. And it's fucking fantastic. Mm-hmm. There, is a, there is a discovery about halfway through the movie regarding the nature of, not necessarily the nature of the quote-unquote zombies, but the nature of the their creation, let's say. And how that information is dealt with, how it's used, how it's weaponized throughout the course of the last half of the movie is so fucking smart and engaging and just straight up fucking cool. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've never seen anything like it before or since. Uh, It is utterly unique Um, And again, it's all carried on the backs of like, you know, one really amazing lead performance and a handful of great supporting performances. Uh, It's funny. It's it's just like I said, engaging. And at times it is scary as hell. 
Um, and it's absolutely Paul, a fucking must see man. Like, please DVD, rent it, do what you got to do. But I'll watch you, it. I'm, I can't need, wait to see it. I, it's high. I'm, this like movie. I said, I'm not like avoiding it. I just, it's, it's really the fault of the, the, you know, the production people for not putting it on Blu-ray. I mean, that's who I blame. <laughs> I, you know, I think what's weird is I think it was IFC before there was an IFC Midnight, before IFC Midnight partnered with um, a Scream Factory. So maybe the people we need to lean on mm. uh, would maybe be Scream Factory and be like, hey, hey, guys, come on, you know? Because this is a movie that needs a light shown on it. I really do believe that. The movie is 13 Scream years Scream would old. be a great company to put it out. I think it would, if they did like a collector's edition, that would be awesome. Yes, yes, it would. Paul, you gotta watch it. Promise me you'll right, watch it. I'll watch it. I do I, I will. I again I really want to see this one. I'm I if it was available to rent on like Amazon or Voodoo or even buy, like I would probably do it right away. If I send um, you the DVD, will you watch it? <laughs> yes. I will okay. watch the DVD if you send it to me. All right. I'll I'll uh, yeah, I will see it. Okay. Um all right. Well, my last one, I'm gonna end with a true one hundred percent horror movie uh and bring it home strong with nineteen eighty three's mausoleum. Uh I've never seen it. You're gonna have to take this one solo. So I've seen this one a couple times. I have the um uh the the awesome vinegar syndrome Blu-ray release of this one although the copy i watched was not the vinegar syndrome release uh because i every once in a while a buddy of mine uh that i don't get to see very often will do like a sort of like we'll we'll video chat each other and watch a movie together uh and we try to pick ones that are sort of like a little more silly and over the top so we can kind of talk during them and stuff and uh like last time we did maximum overdrive so this time we decided he he let he put the ball in my court and said, "Hey, pick something, you know, sleazy and over the top from the early 80s." And I saw that Mausoleum was streaming on Amazon and uh that was what I went with. And this movie is very very uh very fun. <laughs> uh it is one of those movies that's kind of uh, an amalgam of different psychic, you know, possessed people movies from the the late seventies and early eighties. It's about a woman who sort of like at the beginning of the film is a, is a young girl and she, her mother has died and she sort of runs into this adjacent mausoleum at the, uh, at the cemetery where her mother was buried. And through a series of like somewhat inexplicable events, she is like possessed by a demon uh, or maybe she was possessed by a, the demon that, like, they, they suggest that there's this weird history of demonic possession in her family. You know, it's it's very, there's, like, a ton, like, a ludicrous amount of exposition through dialogue. There's, like, voiceovers and, like, long stints of people just, like, talking, like, and then this, and then this, and then this. And all this, like, mythology is thrown at you in, like, the span of five minutes, and none of it makes any sense. Um, but it's very, very entertaining. And, uh, uh, so from there, she like, there's sort of a fast forward, uh, fast forward and she kind of grows up and now she's a, you know, young, well, young woman, middle-aged woman married, uh, to a wealthy man. Everything seems, you know, fine. And, uh, yet she starts acting very strangely 
and uh, her eyes glow green, and then she starts like murdering people with her mind. And yeah, and there's a lot of weird shit in it that doesn't make a ton of sense. There's a lot of sleazy stuff where like there's this gardener that's kind of like obsessing over her and like trying to sleep with her and that's really weird and then like at first she's like skeeved out by it but then like the demon takes over and then there's like she's kind of like seducing him but that's so she can kill him it's just none of it again it's one of those movies where it feels like aliens made it like like people who (laughs) watched a bunch of sleazy 80s movies and then said okay that must be what human movies are and so a lot of the fun of the movie is is that um but it it's it's just i will say the effects in the movie are they're not like amazing but they're they're good enough um to where you're just kind of I don't know. You're sort of charmed by them. You know what I mean? Like, like practical effects from the early eighties when they're done in a certain way can just be, uh, they just make you happy. Um, and I know that, uh, gosh, who, somebody worked on this and I'm, I'm blank. Oh, uh, uh, John Carl Buchler. Oh, he's amazing. Yeah. That's, he did like the special makeup effects on this movie. So like all the demon stuff uh, he designed and it looks pretty good. Um, so when you get to the actual, like she becomes a demon stuff, it's, it's all very entertaining. And so, you know, for all of the movies sort of like silly things, there's actually some good stuff in it. Um, but yeah. So if you're, if you're in the mood for like a sleazy early eighties riff on i guess like i don't even know it's not really even like a carry riff but it's kind of in the that like knockoff camp where it's very clearly trying to take elements from you know psychic kinetic movies like that um uh, and it and if you have a few beers and i know right now you can't really watch it in a group with friends but it's that kind of movie um the transfer on amazon is not great (laughs) so i still recommend anybody interested in it pick up the uh amazing vinegar syndrome blu-ray uh but yeah it's it's a good time good deal i have never seen it i will have to check this out man it sounds like a blast Mm -hmm. all right we are (laughs) we're an hour and 10 minutes into we did it we did it we made it we knew we would All right, so this evening, Paul, the Hammer film of choice that we are going to be running through with our commentary is The Witches. So, uh, big fan of this movie. I love Angelica Houston. What did uh, What did you think of the uh, remake with Anne Hathaway at HBO Max earlier last? Was it earlier this year or late last year? I think it was. Uh, uh, it was late last year, right? Because it was October. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, yeah. I think the uh, Anne Hathaway remake was unfairly maligned. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, and I, as a big uh, Robert Zemeckis fan, I actually, my hot take on that movie, um, and I'll say this, the, <laughs> come on, this tangent, the original, uh, I, I love the practical effects of the, the Jim Henson effects of the original. Um, you know, it's, the 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 practical mice and all that it's it's amazing it's it's more enjoyable to see that stuff than cgi you know we'll get that out of the way having said that i think the new one's a better film i think it i think it 
the story makes more sense. I think it's more interesting. I think it deals with uh, social issues better. Um, I think, you know, changing the ethnicity of the main character was a really smart choice. Uh, and I think it's uh, I think it's a better movie. <laughs> I really do. Paul, you just did it five minutes in response to a joke. I did. I did. <laughs> I did. And I would have kept going. That see, this is what you should have learned this about me by now. I, like, yeah, I, I, will, know. I will. You know what's crazy is is that I actually agree with you entirely. Uh, I, I really like that remake. I <laughs> do not awesome. understand uh the, I do not the, understand yeah. all the hate that it's it so got, freaking but... weird that people went after that movie. I just don't get it. And 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 Everything about it is so fun. I mean, the only thing that I didn't love is the CGI. Um, I think that might be part of it. I think some people just can't, like, cannot forgive CGI. I think that's a big thing for some people. And that's, you know, I mean, I got to admit, I'm not the biggest CG fan when it's not employed in such a way as, uh, you know, I always love seeing CG mixed with practical effects. Take it as far as you can practically and then bring the CG in. Uh, which I actually think that happens a, a good deal in this movie. I think Zemeckis usually uses CG pretty smart, but then there are times where it does seem like it's just kind of a crutch. And, you know, I kind of missed the more handcrafted feel of the original movie, which I... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Also, and, and, but, uh, well, and the only other thing I'll say before we get away from this joke um, is Anne Hathaway is so great in that movie and she's having so much fun and she's, say, she's having around. a blast. And, and of course I love Angelica Houston and of course she's a great head witch. And of course that first movie is really wonderful. But again, I just think like when you look at the ins and outs, the nitty gritty nuts and bolts of the film, I, I think the second one, the new one works better as a movie, even though I love certain parts of the original, maybe more than this new one. So anyway, we can talk about the actual movie we're here to talk about now. So we're not talking about the Roald Doll adaptation either. The original adaptation uh, with <laughs> with Angelica Houston or its remake. In fact, because this is a podcast about Hammer movies, we are going to be discussing 1966's The Witches, directed by Cyril Frankel and starring Joan Fontaine. So, folks out there listening, if you're actually going to play along with this, you know what the title is. I'm sure you've already got your discs ready. I don't even know if this damn thing is streaming. I'm sure it's not. But I tell you what, in any case, if you are going to watch along with this, let's go ahead and cue it all up to the very first frame. And Paul, let me know when you're ready. Sure. So we're going past the British Board of Film Censors thing, right? No, Paul. No, I want to include that. Oh, okay. Well, now I have to rewind. Yep. I went too far. I've come too far. (laughs) Listeners out there, are you ready? I'm going to pretend that all of you are saying yes in unison. All right. So let's go ahead, everyone, and press play after the countdown. Five, four, three, two, one, and play. And, Paul, you're right. They uh, There is sort of a notice at the beginning from the film censors that this movie has been rated X, which kind of boggles the mind, considering... Uh, Considering the content, Paul, isn't exactly that racy or that violent or that bloody. Why Why do you think this movie got singled out and rated X when uh, maybe some of the others were, well, were not branded with the uh, red X, as it were? 
it is really bizarre uh, that it that it got that rating and everything I was reading about it. There isn't a lot about this movie. I think part of it is, from what I can tell, Hammer didn't really like go to bat for this movie like they did some of the other ones. Like they would fight the censors on certain things and take things out. It probably boils down to one or two sequences that the censors just didn't like and Hammer didn't bother removing. Um, and I do know the occult was a real racy hot topic at that time too. Um, they didn't like anything dealing with uh, the occult. And this, this is a movie that sort of like really starts to go into the stuff that would define Hammer's back half of the sixties. Hmm. I'm curious to hear more of your thoughts on that. And I'm sure we'll get into them because I, yeah, we'll save that. I'm, 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 <laughs> want to table that conversation well, I, just a moment I would until say, we get through the prologue but yeah well we can talk about the pro- yeah the prologue's its own thing i mean I, I do we want to say overall thoughts or do we just want to stick on the prologue for now what do you want to do well let's i mean we can talk about this prologue the the prologue one again this is a bit of a rarity for hammer movies it kind of reminds me of plague of the zombies which was the same year right this was 66 yeah, yeah. So, so sort not of only like... did they do that weird four film run, but they also made this one too. By the way, I didn't mean to sound so pushy when I said, "What do you want to do?" Uh, I meant that like, oh, you're like "Hey, what do you want to do?" No, I sound like a pushy. Dude um, the uh, one of those actors there they they mentioned in the commentary was actually the ghost from uh, Devil Rides Out that appears. I thought that was kind of interesting. The Nigerian actor. Uh, Ab- Abju Bado. I'm pronouncing it wrong, so I'm not going to try. I'll mess it yeah. up. This opening is uh, unfortunate in a handful of ways. Um, it is, yeah. I, I mean, it is. I mean, how? But a ton of these. I mean, I I try to watch these movies with the context of the times. I mean, you know, they're they're problematic in a lot of different ways. Um, obviously, this is fairly problematic. <laughs> um, and it it's. What I what I guess I like about it is it sets up this weird sort of mystery about her past in terms of her experience with um, what you might call like not just magic, but like rituals or blanket the occult, which is kind of what I label it as um, and how Joan Fontaine's character didn't really know how to deal with it and sort of folds in the face of it. Like she immediately is, uh, you know, she, she sort of becomes victimized of it immediately. Um, and, and doesn't really, and allows it to kind of take over her mind because later we're sort of told that, Oh, she was in hospital after this and, uh, was sort of had like a mental breakdown. So it also makes her an unreliable narrator, which makes that opening somewhat, questionable as well because we don't really know if what we saw was like the full truth of it or if that's just her recollection of it you know there's there's not a lot of direct um exposition around what we just saw right and i you know it is interesting i almost wonder um (laughs) i i like the idea of a character having already had a brush with the supernatural in such a way that it in no way connects to the supernatural that they'll run into in the film proper. You know what I mean? I like that idea going back to, uh, 
you know, when I was a kid, when I watched uh, Clive Barker's Lord of Illusions for the first time, you know, there's that character, Harry Damore, who was constantly running into supernatural happenings just by virtue of the fact that he's somebody who's naturally drawn to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I love the idea of like a supernaturally beleaguered character, you know, um, and, you know, it, it would have been interesting if, you know, I'm always talking franchises when it comes to these one-off Hammer films, but I, I wonder what a sequel might have looked like had she run afoul of another type of, uh, you know, supernatural entity of sorts. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, I, I like that idea. I, and I think this movie's really interesting because of her her character being kind of sort of introverted but like you can tell she's i mean one you can just tell joan fontaine is an accomplished actress you know there's layers to her performance that that i would say aren't always present in characters like that in these types of movies yes like i mean i feel like she's bringing something to this role that that makes me read into it more than i probably would have if it wasn't her um you know, and even even this scene where she's like trying to put on a face and get this job, you you almost get the impression that she is like she can't get she's tried to get jobs, but people won't hire her because of her being in hospital. And when he brings it up, she gets so afraid. And then when he sort of offers her the position, the, the gratitude she feels. And yet you're here with this guy who, by all accounts, is a total fraud. Right. We don't know that yet. But this this is sort of indicative of what this movie consistently does is present us with falsehoods under the guise of normality. Um, and I I really, really dig like I love the care. Like I love the characterization of like a guy who wears a priest outfit, but isn't a priest. That's I think that's weird... so interesting. It, yeah. Yeah. The movie could almost. I wanted more with that guy. I wanted more with that character and why he made that decision and what his life must be like. You know, it's such an interesting yeah, little... and like his his obsession, like his collection of like weird religious artifacts and things like that. And it, but it feels like very much that what this movie's doing is constantly showing us the tip of an iceberg. Right? Like it's it's showing us a little bit and giving us a little bit of hint at what's the, what's bigger. And in the commentary I uh, I didn't listen to all of it. I'm sure we'll kind of touch on the commentary. Oh, we're gonna mentions... we're gonna touch on the. We'll get there. Uh, he uh, Ted Newsom suggests that you know the downfall, the ultimate downfall of this movie, is that it is is just that is that it it never really gets to the meat of all of these things it sets up. I would argue that's its strength. Um, I actually think that's one of the smart decisions it makes uh, because one, it puts you in the headspace of Gwen of Joan Fontaine's character. Like you, you are right there with her. You don't quite know, you know, things are wrong. You know, things are off, but you don't quite know why. And the only information you ever really get is the same information she gets. It's not a movie that shows you the truth. You know, a lot of movies, would would sort of like reveal everything to the audience, maybe a, like well before the primary character finds out um, and probably give you more information than that character w- would ever get. I, this movie doesn't do that, but I think it's to its benefit personally. I would agree with that. I, you know, and I appreciated the fact that 
it holds to that all the way through the end. Like I, you know, we never have a Wicker Man esque moment where you have a Lord Summer Isle type coming out and doing the Bond villain monologue. I'm not pissing on the Wicker Man. I adore the Wicker Man. The Wicker Man is a fucking masterpiece. But no. there is that moment when you get somebody coming out to explain to our lead character which is really just explaining to us exactly what the fuck has been going on. And I like that this movie gives us enough. Like we know pretty much, we have a grasp on what's gone on by the end of this movie, much as our lead character does, but we don't know everything. And and I appreciate that, that we don't know any more than our lead character does, that we are there with her step by step by step. It makes it more intense. It makes it a little more scary that we're just as in the dark as she is about a lot of this. And it's funny you bring up the Wicker Man. So I got to tell you, when I was watching this movie, I was like, okay, so uh, this is a direct lineage, like, to the Wicker Man. <laughs> like, this movie is, honestly, it's 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 kind of the same movie for a lot of it. it. It's, I mean, the whole setup is the Wicker Man. Other, you know, I mean, yeah, it's not the same like plot. Like, there's not like a murder that drew her here, and she's a very different character uh, than the man. It's it's kind of like a like if the Wicker Man had been done, you know, with a more female centric pers- from a more female centric pers- perspective, you would have a movie kind of like this um, because it's it's very much a you know it's a it's gaslight the movie. They're everyone's gaslighting her, um, and and sort of like fooling her into being a part of this bigger thing that will, you know, sort of benefit the, uh, the cult or the, the coven or whatever the hell it is. It's really an amalgam of different <laughs> certain, like, it's going to say it's, it's things. no one thing, right? Like, right. It's a hodgepodge, but, but it's, but it's the wicker man. I mean, and, and in, in a good way. And, Honestly, it, not that it lessens the Wicker Man for me, but I got to say it kind of makes the Wicker Man a tad less impressive because I'm like, oh, well, this movie did a lot of that stuff first. Well, yeah, but it's all also like, you know, it's its own subgenre, too, that they're both pulling from. Like, this is very folk horror, you know, and which I, you know, which is part of the, by the way, before I get into this, I just want to say I know he's off screen right now, but I think it's worth bearing out because I'm going to mention it every time he's on screen. But that cat is an amazing actor. <laughs> this movie holds the best cat acting. Don't don't you wish that cat could have been uh, the cat in Pet Cemetery? Oh my god! Don't you wish that that was possible somehow? Because that would have been the greatest Pet Cemetery cat. That's all I, I kept mean, thinking. I'm like, oh, that that is that should have been the cat. Yeah, yeah. He he hits his marks. He, he knows he his does. angles. Like, he does. it's impressive as hell. No, this <laughs> this movie to me, like when when I got into it, I I, I was sort of struck by this notion. I was like, uh, you know, going into it initially, I was like, well, you know, this is a Hammer movie I've never seen before. This is a Hammer movie that I've really never even heard before, other than coming across the title. So why haven't I heard of this? And then I got into watching the movie, and I was like, this is. This is not giving me hammer vibes. So what is this? And then I realized, like, at a certain point, I'm like, oh, this is very folk horror. This is oh, very yeah. Wicker Man. This is very, you know, um, uh, Blood on Satan's Claw. This is, you know, there's a little making in here. Like, I, so, so it got me thinking, man. And I'm, I'm very curious to see what you might think about this, too. Like, 
this this is a horror movie, right? And it's a horror movie made by Hammer, therefore it is Hammer horror, right? Because the thing is, is like, you know, Hammer did comedies and they did swashbucklers, they did crime films, but it, inevitably when we say Hammer, what do we think of, you know? Uh, well, yeah. This, I mean... this is a horror film, again, made by Hammer, but it isn't a Hammer horror, so... My question is, one, do you agree with me on that? And two, if you do, my question would be, you know, we're, we're how many movies in by this point? 18, 19, 20, something like that? My question to you is, Paul, what is Hammer Horror? Well, I think, I think there's, there's two answers to that question. I mean, I think, like, you're, the first thing is, what do you think of when you think of Hammer Horror? Well, you're going to think of Dracula. You're going to think of Frankenstein. You're going to think of... um you know, Terrence Fisher, you're going to think of vampires, you know, you're going to think of like gothic, romantic, um, sort of like highly, highly sexualized in their own way, um, boundary pushing movies. But just because that's the reputation they have, I doesn't really mean that that's the only thing that defines horror to hammer because for every you know one of those films there's a you know there's a paranoiac there's a nightmare there's there there are these movies that exist as more like somber introspective still gothic in a lot of ways but but aren't the same thing as those other horror films and this kind of fits that camp a little bit more i always have had a chip on my shoulder about calling things thrillers (laughs) Because I feel like thriller thrillers do exist and everything, but it's also like a way, I don't know, sometimes it feels like a, like, oh, well, I don't really think of this as horror, so I'm going to call it a thriller, even though it's still kind of a horror movie. You know what I well, mean? Well, it's, like, not, it's not always, it's not just thriller either. Inevitably, you know that somebody is pulling some shenanigans uh, when they say psychological thriller. Yeah, right. So, know? like, I mean, I have no problem <laughs> saying, like, uh, North by Northwest, right? That's not a horror movie, but it's not really a drama. You know, it's it's more of a thriller. Like, it's, it's exciting, something's happening, but it's not horror. Um, but, like, when people like to call, like, Silence of the Lambs a thriller, I'm like, well, fuck off. It's... it's Bullshit. I, you can call... Well, one, you can call anything anything you want, but, like, to say it's specifically not horror. So, anyway, having said all that, I think all of those movies are horror movies. I think, you know, Nightmare is a horror movie just as Dracula is a horror movie. They're just different types of horror. Folk horror is definitely a thing, obviously, but, like, I wouldn't go out of my way to not call The Wicker Man a horror movie. You know, I would be like, yeah, it's a horror movie, even though it's folk horror. So, like, this, to me, is still very much a horror film. It's doing something different. Like, there is some, it's a subgenre of horror. I don't think it fits in with, you know, the bigger horror elements. But but the other thing I kind of noticed when I was reading about this film is Hammer was pretty hands-off with it. It didn't have a lot of the normal Hammer regulars involved in its production. You know what I mean? And I think that's one of the reasons it doesn't feel, it really doesn't feel as hammer. It wasn't even shot at Bray and like visually it feels like a different thing, you know, because of that. Visually, I swear like at a glance, it reminds me a lot of the birds 
like that sort of flatness in a way, like not in a bad way, but I mean, there is a, yeah, you know, there's, well, there's it, kind it of doesn't, a, you know, and it helps that, uh, you know, Joan Fontaine is a, is a Hitchcock alumna alumnus, you know, she was in, you know, she's Rebecca. So th- there's definitely a Hitchcockian sort of feel in some ways to some of the direction and how the movie's set up. Well, it's not Hitchcockian in the sense of like, cause Hitchcock would have revealed a lot to the audience before the character found out, you know, which this movie doesn't really do. So I don't think it's Hitchcockian in plot. Yeah. But you, I think you like there's seen definitely in the visual, there's a visual language that is influenced by Hitchcock, but Cyril Frankel didn't really do a lot of hammer. Did they? I mean, I, I'm not familiar with any other, they might've made like something else that wasn't, I don't know. Uh, wasn't like one of their, near as I can tell, I took a quick pass on Frankel's, uh, filmography. The only other thing that I recognized him from was, uh, he directed the pilot to, uh, the great IT was it ITV or ITC uh, television shows, British show called Randall and Hop Kirk deceased, uh, which is a great fucking show, man. Uh, it's basically kind of like a cop drama where one of the cops dies and comes back as a ghost and uh, their partnership gotcha. continues on. Um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, other than that, I didn't really recognize anything that the man had done and I don't, believe he had ever it was itc entertainment's randall and hopkirk deceased oh okay um but yeah no a great show if you ever get the chance to watch it but uh beyond that no i'm not sure that i'm familiar with anything that frankel ever did and you're right i will say about hitchcock too like you mentioned to him that he would have revealed things early on enough like you're absolutely right by the end of the first act he he (laughs) he would have shown the witches ticking away underneath the picnic table like uh <laughs> yeah i I don't away. know that in a Hitchcock world that like it would have been treated as a reveal that Kay Walsh is like the head witch, although I will say it's easy to see a mile away like the they they didn't do a great job of handling her uh her true identity um but it did have, I mean, it had a heavy hit, hitter producing it. Anthony Elson Keyes produced it. Um, and he's obviously, I mean, he produced Curse of Frankenstein. So he's as hammer as anybody else. Um, and Nigel Neal wrote the screenplay. And that's really fascinating to me, especially because I just I just wrote a whole thing on a Nigel Neal screenplay and uh, listened to a commentary he did um, on a Abominable Snowman. Because he wrote to me Abominable Snowman. He... And he wrote uh, Quartermass. Or Quatermass. Yeah. I did Quarter again, sorry. No, you're I'm fine. Still... No, you're right. He did Quatermass and Quatermass 2 and Quatermass in the Pit. Like, well, when we say he didn't, like, they're they're based on pre-existing Well, he did the, the BBC time, like... uh, yes. live broadcast. I mean, which, I that is such an interesting thing. The the Sunday night live shows that they <laughs> used to do. I, I Not to get on too much of a tangent. Well, what sucks is so many of those don't exist anymore because they didn't keep the tape. Paul, so as we a Doctor can't... Who fan, one yeah, of the most frustrating things is hearing sucks. hearing about all of that. Well, for example, like the only reason that we have a lot of Doctor Who stuff remaining is because basically, like uh, fans at home would record them, and you know because the original materials are 
they've managed to find a lot of them like dubs and stuff um you know they would dub these shows and then send them out to other territories that would not erase them but like their masters and the stuff they would actually shoot in studio they would erase the shows paul so that they could re-record over the same like uh that's media it's (laughs) <laughs> unbelievable to me like it's just it's astonishing but but yeah no i i neil's participation you're right is kind of surprising considering that he never made any bones about the fact that he was not a fan of uh you know particularly brian dunlevy the the guy who played quatermass in the first two um adaptations but really just well, the movies period so the fact that he actually just straight up penned an adaptation of a novel for them in 66 is kind of, uh, kind of surprising. Well, I think Neil was the kind of guy too, from everything I've read that he just, one, he liked complaining about shit that (laughs) had been adapted (laughs) from his writing because like, so take like Val Guest, for example, like, so Val Guest did, you know, he wrote his BBC version, which was this huge hit hammer commissioned him to help out with the, um, making that into a feature film. And then when that came out directed by, uh, 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 Val guest, he was kind of like, he, he was like, Oh, this is terrible. I hate this. You know, he did a bad job, like basically publicly (laughs) called out Val guest. And then like two years later, uh, they're like, Hey, we want to do, uh, you know, the creature, which is what became the abominable snowman. And they're like, we want Val guest to direct. And Nigel Neal was like, yeah, that sounds great. (laughs) So it's like I think he I think he was just one of those guys that liked to complain about things but and said shit but didn't really like hold the grudges that he said he was holding. Um the the other interesting thing about Nigel Neal is that he did uncredited work on Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Oh yeah, which he apparently was not a fan of either. Uh <laughs> if if it's yeah, if apparently he hated everything that he wrote, but hey, whatever. He's like anytime it made it to the screen, like if he had a hand in the writing of it, it did not meet his standard. He he reminds me of like a curmudgeonly Alan Moore type or Harlan Ellison, perhaps, you know, just uh just just you know, more than a little happy to be more than a little pissy. Yeah. He has a commentary track that they recorded in the early two thousand tens uh uh for abominable snowman and it was really interesting to hear him talk about the work uh and and honestly listening to him then he was a lot softer on it than what you would read um even when he talked about quatermass like he i don't think again i don't think that he hated that stuff as much as he let on but who knows that's Uh, fair but i i I think you can tell that he was like you watch this movie, you can tell that this was someone that was very, he was very dialogue driven um, because he had to be, you know, the things he was writing for television had to be basically teleplays that were mostly people talking, you know, they couldn't really do much with effects at that time. So, you know, a lot of his stuff was very wordy and very thought provoking. Um, And I think this movie holds true to that. I think it's a very thought provoking film that a lot can be gleaned from the conversation. And what I like is the conversation is more, you have to pull things out of the falseness of what's being said, not the actual, you know, content of it. Yeah. You know, we're watching on the screen here too. You know, you already mentioned her once, but like I, Joan Fontaine is, well, obviously she is a star, but you know, I thought it was really curious and I appreciated the fact that 
in this kind of story, we have a character who is middle-aged, you know, uh, and that's something that in this type of story, in this time with that studio, it's more than a little interesting to see a woman of her age. And let, let me be clear. She is beautiful here, but it's interesting to see her leading this type of film when we would otherwise kind of expect that role to be inhabited by like the gorgeous, you know, young ingenue type, you know what I mean? But instead here we have a heroine who, you know, she has a past. She's lived a life up until this point. I wish there were more movies that had middle-aged heroines. You know, I, I think it's more interesting, but, um, Certainly like her performance too, like she's obviously fantastic and was a champion for this movie and even getting it made, I believe. Did I hear that right? That I think she actually, she's the one who brought the book to the producers and to Hammer to actually be adapted in the first place, right? Yeah. Yeah. She, uh, she was the one that brought it to him. She, she pretty much championed the film. I agree with you. I think her, I I think she brings, as I said earlier, I think she brings a ton to the role. And I think it makes it infinitely more compelling. Um, And I think if she was a young woman, I mean, I know from what I heard when I was reading the character in the book is intended to be much older uh, or, or kind of has that appearance um, than, than even Joan Fontaine, which is interesting to me. Um, because I, I think that she does bring a worldliness and, and, and a bit of a like, like she's weathered, you know, and some of that's coming from the opening. Um, you can tell that there's a there's there's something about her that's hidden uh, in, in her interactions with people, uh, which parallels the hidden nature of the town. Right. You know, like the, the fact that when she's out and about there's things people say things people do that don't feel quite right you know and there's you know some a rosemary's baby-esque uh a way that she's treated by other people in the town you know what i mean like like the way rosemary's elderly neighbors treat her and talk to her is very comparable to the way the townsfolk uh treat and talk to gwen you're right, but, it, you know, and I'm wondering if there's a reading on this movie where all of that should be insidious, like, right at the off. You know what I mean? Because I don't necessarily, this was, by the way, this was a first time watch for me, um, catching this movie. So I I did not really know what to expect. And I got to say, like, I did not necessarily call it straight away that the bulk of the town was in on the... Uh, you know, the witchery, as it were. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think there's a way that they could have done this movie that would have been race with the devil in a way, you know, like everybody is in on it. You know what See, I mean? And they didn't they didn't do that. Or at least I didn't feel that. I felt like, you know, it, it's it was a matter of picking out who was involved and who wasn't as opposed to, you know, no, no, it's pretty much just the town. So it's funny you say that. And I, I've never seen this movie either, but for, I don't know, for me, I knew immediately (laughs) and I'm not trying to sound like, you know, I'm not trying to be like, oh, I caught it. It's just literally how I felt when I was watching it. Like the minute she started interacting with people, um, I just, I could tell something was off. Um, and I, and I credit that, like, well, that, 
that's I mean, and that was how I was with. Now I will say this: when I first, because I've talked about before how I came kind of came to horror late in my in my movie, not late, but like later than a lot of people um, uh, that I meet who are horror fans. And uh, when I saw The Wicker Man, I was aware of the general plot, so I didn't really see the wicker man like blind like i knew it was a guy who was going to an island that was like a cult island so i kind of knew like that everyone there was sort of bad or whatever right so like i never got to see the wicker man like completely blind so i didn't really you know get that experience so i don't know if i would have been able to see that film and not pick up on it but when i watch it it's just like the most because i've seen it it's like the most obvious thing in the world this movie the minute she goes to that shop where the woman's like, Oh, yeah, welcome. You know, here's this and here's that. And like, and the girl who was like helping move her things into the house, it all just felt so storybook. And that immediately made me question it. Um, and, and especially given like the way, like even when the guy, the guy who's dressed as a priest, which obviously I didn't know he wasn't a priest. I assumed he was, um, says like oh i heard you spend some time in hospital and she like completely lost her shit like she started getting like emotional and like her eyes were tearing up and he's like oh you're hired and she was like really <laughs> like she she was like shocked she's like you're hiring me knowing all of this and seeing how upset i'm getting about it and he's like yeah when can you start and i was like okay something's wrong like something is wrong with this place she's going that was the the first moment i knew and then I guess that sort of informed everything else. And then the way that Kay Walsh's uh, character just immediately embraces her and she's so together and so like, you know, she's a writer and she's so wonderful and she's everything you could ever hope in a boss and a friend. I was like, well, well, she's bad. <laughs> she's the villain <laughs> uh, because that's, you know, that's that's what you do. You you give the best and the, the least likely character. And then every time you see her she's like gaining more information from Gwen and sort of commenting on it. And she has this great soliloquy about belief begetting power, which we can talk about in a moment. I'm jumping all around, but like, yeah, it just, everything about the film felt like a puzzle being put together of a cult movie. It really feels like a great cult movie. I don't know. So yeah, that, that was kind of my experience little... with it. There's a little wicker. Well, God, I can't speak. There's a little wicker man in there. Certainly, there's a little. Uh, in a weird way, at times, especially in the back half, it started reminding me of Kill List, uh, the great Ben Wheatley movie oh, yeah, from yeah, about yeah. a decade ago. I could see that. Just, yeah, just got little, just little vibes from it. You know, just a little bit. I man, I've, I've said this, you know, a thousand times on this podcast and its various iterations over the years, but I more than any other type of horror movie villain, like cults freak me out more than anything. And so you're right. When this movie started going that route, I was just kind of like, good, get out of there. Uh, but still, I never really, I, it was pretty late in the game with this one that I sort of keyed to the fact that it was, mm. you know, it was pretty much the town because it felt like, you know, there were moments where it felt like, not necessarily, you know, some of the townspeople weren't in on. I mean, obviously the the head witch, as it were, uh, our Angelica Houston slash Anne Hathaway, as it were, you know, it. you're right. It's obvious from the get-go that that's, that's what's going on there. But I, I didn't necessarily feel that from the, uh, you know, the sort of village at large. 
Interesting. Yeah, I wonder if I just brought, I mean, and like I said, for me, this movie is like Wicker Man through and through. I just kept repeating, oh, Wicker Man. Okay, this is Wicker Man. Oh, this is just like Wicker Man. So I guess that's why I kept like going back to that is I just feel like there's so much Wicker Man DNA in this film. It's just bleeding through the seams. Like other, other than the ending, the whole thing feels incredibly Wicker Man. It's just Wicker Man with a different character in it. You know, like if you put her, it, and that's the thing is like if you put Joan Fontaine's Gwen Mayfield into Wicker Man, it would be this movie. It would just be the same film, <laughs> you know. And, and I guess that's more because she would go with the flow a little bit more than the character in that film. Um, I'm wondering and, if maybe um, this movie predated the source novel that the Wicker Man has. I'm looking that up now. Um, I don't know. And I'm not trying to like take away from the Wicker Man at all. I think the Wicker Man's a fantastic film. It's just, honestly, the reason it surprises me so much, and maybe this just speaks to my lack of film knowledge, but the Wicker Man has always struck me as a movie that I had never seen anything really like it. Um, I can't think of many movies even now. I mean, yeah, you can think of like Midsommar, but like there aren't a lot of movies that are like Wicker Man. Um, There are a lot of movies that are about gaslighting. There are a lot of uh, uh, cult movies, but there aren't movies that are like that film. And this was one of the very first times where I'm like, oh, this is so much like it. You know, I guess that's why it's so striking to me. Okay, so do you want to hear something interesting? Tell me. (laughs) Okay, so The Wicker Man was based in part very loosely. um, I mean, so loosely that you're not going to see a credit on the finished film, and yet the producers bought the rights to it because it was was close enough. Um, But anyway, The Wicker Man is very loosely based on a novel called Ritual by David Pinner. Um, the plot summary is this, an English police officer named David Hanlon, a puritanical Christian is asked to investigate what appears to be the ritualistic murder of a local child in an enclosed rural Cornish village. During his short stay, Hanlon deals with psychological trickery, sexual seduction, ancient religious practices, and nightmarish sacrificial rituals. Now, This movie that we're watching was admittedly based on a novel as well, but this film was released in 1966. Ritual, the novel, was written by Penner in 1966. Mm. And it was published in 67. That is interesting. Because when was Nora Loft's... Because the the book this movie is based on is The Devil's Own, right? The Devil's Own, a.k.a. Catches Catch Can, a.k.a. The Little Wax Doll. And it was, let me see, looking that up, dead air, dead air, dead air, we're dying here. Um. <laughs> this is this is how podcasts are done, folks. This is, yep. this is the quality stuff you're looking for. See, this is all stuff that we would normally just straight up cut out, but we can't do that because we're doing a commentary and we need to keep pace with the film that is unspooling. So you're just going to have to bear with us, folks. All right, Nora Lofts wrote The Devil's Own, which came out in 1960. See, I I have to I kind of wonder if that or this had any sort of influence over what The Wicker Man became. And honestly, even if the novel wasn't influenced by that, I would probably wager that like 
they that the the producers or the filmmaker or whatever like had seen this film you know it got a wide release um nigel oh, neal they, they had to have I, yeah honestly, nigel neal is a name like he he definitely had a following at that point um and certainly joan fontaine and this was her final film this is the last movie she ever made and what a way to go out <laughs> but how is it that the wicker man was not a hammer film yeah, and that's the thing. And then add in the fact that starring Christopher Lee, for God's sakes, you know what I mean? Like it's it really, it really would have felt Christopher right to Lee have that movie. And Edward Woodward's character was meant to be played at one point by Peter Cushing. Oh my God, I didn't know that. Yep. Could you could you imagine I that can't... movie with Peter Cushing? The, but the, the thing hard is, thing in nineteen seventy four. I could not imagine Cushing playing uh, a virgin. I can barely, <laughs> I can barely buy that Edward Woodward is yeah, a virgin. But... You know what? And there's one other issue, and and for me, it's that Cushing is one of those guys that it's really hard to not feel sort of empathy for him in some ways. Like even when he's villainous, there's a couple times where he accomplishes it. Don't get me wrong. But he's just a light. It, it'd be because you really have to kind of not like uh, the the protagonist uh, in Wicker Man. I, that's kind of I, important. I can I can I say something? I have heard that over the years, Paul. I have always liked Sergeant. Oh, Hall. really? <laughs> no, and here's why. Here's why. I that's do fine. think I mean... he he's a man. No, don't get me wrong. He, he's you know religiously intolerant uh, to the point where he he does come off as like a, a a complete you know asshole to everyone. Pretty much, he comes up against in that village, and yet at the same time, you know I can see why people dislike him because of that. Because who does he remind you of? Yeah, he's he's you know a, a cop from the UK, but really in the way that he approaches people and the way that he sort of beats the Bible at them, he reminds me of, you know, if we want to apply it to, you know, the present day, he reminds me a lot of, uh, you know, like current day evangelicals or somebody like that, you know, like who are quick to judge and, you know, uh, wag a finger or wave a Bible at somebody, you know, he has that sort of like closed mindedness. But the difference I think with Howie is that, I think deep down, Howie is a genuinely good man. I, I, I think he's a principled man. I think the bulk of his anger and sort of brusqueness doesn't necessarily come from the fact that he is... I mean, obviously, he's personally offended by a lot of the stuff that he sees in this little pagan colony. But more than anything, he is there to find a missing little girl... And he keeps butting up against just constant nonsense from the people in this village and and people, you know, no one will give him a straight answer. You know, everyone seems to be obfuscating what is the case. And so he starts getting angrier and angrier. And so those two things start to dovetail. Yeah. You have on the one hand, you have this Christian copper who is upset at all the pagan, you know, uh, sort of symbols and iconography, like littered about through that Island. Sure. But then that goes hand in hand with the fact that he is a cop who is trying to find a little girl who may be in grave danger. So to me, the fact that like it, it, it is kind of a hero's quest kind of movie, like uh, that goes to a really horrible dark place. But yeah, I, I never understood the reads on the movie that just found him completely unlikable. Because to me, the only way the movie that 
the only way that movie works for me is by having some sympathy for Howie and to be able uh, to follow I over mean, his shoulder the I, entire time. I guess, yeah. I mean, I, it's not that I have no sympathy for him. I mean, the man's burned alive. That's it's no, hard I mean, not to feel sympathy for that. I mean, even leading but like, I, I think for me, that character. So obviously everything he's up against, you're right. is like frustrating and ridiculous and anybody would be, annoyed by it and sort of and believe that these people are doing something really wrong and the kids missing and all this shit. But it's hard because he's, he's basically like the walking embodiment of repression, right? Yeah. Which, which is something that isn't, but it, maybe isn't necessarily his fault. Well, I was it's say, how he's, he's a, been raised. And he's, he's a victim of that too. Right. But it also makes him a bit insufferable and he's a bit one note. There's not a whole lot to him. Um, Oh, I disagree with that. I don't really like, well, as a character, I don't know. I mean, there's not, what more is there to him than that? Like in, in the context of the film that you're watching, what do you get to like allow you to latch onto him about his world? Other than the fact that he's a cop, he's by the book, he's here to find this kid uh, and he's super repressed. Like, what else is there for me to see of him other than those like one note definitions? Well, but the, okay, but yeah, if you draw all of those things out and just focus on those, then yeah, I mean, he does seem relatively one note. But the thing is, those are all clothespins on which you can hang, you know, a, a great deal of humanity that we get from that character and from Woodward's performance. Well, he's, I, I, I feel agree, like he's a three dimensional human being. Like, I, you know, you can take a scene like, um, you know, you talk about him being the embodiment of repression. Absolutely. Like that. Fucking hell, man. If Britt Eklund is banging on your door nude, like I, that's that entire sequence where he is constantly, not just that scene, but the entire movie where he is taunted and sort of everything about him, everything that is at the core of that man is challenged and teased out. And he keeps, you know, he kind of holds to who he is for better and worse. That's ultimately the thing that gets him killed by the end of the movie. But I, I can't help but respect that a little bit. Um, no, and I don't I don't hate the character. I, I my what I'm arguing is that it's it's done on purpose. Like he because that's the only way that he has to represent a whole group of people. <laughs> he has to represent the world he's coming from. So he doesn't get the benefit of being any one specific person. That's part of the artistry of that film. I, he, I think he, he I think he represents a, 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 a you know a, a certain type of person. Um and I feel bad for him. I don't, you know, I, I don't know. I just think that like he's kind of a douche that I don't really like as a person. Uh and like I don't know that I could feel that and I think that's imp- I think that's important. I think because then it allows you to sort of understand what, you know, what this other world is sacrificing and what they believe and why they believe it. And it's terrifying. Um, and it's also terrifying that, you know, there they have this sort of uninhibited nature where they're much happier and more free. Um, and yet it's at the cost of something really terrible. Uh, and I, so I, I think that there's a lot going on there. I don't know. I, again, I might not be explaining it the right way. I don't like not like the guy, 
But I think like with Cushing, it would be hard for me to see him in the same way. Like, I don't know that he would like represent sort of that repressed British or you could apply that to anything, but like culture that he's supposed supposed to represent for that well, ending yes. to land. I, I guess then in the way that you say that Cushing could be that for you, Edward Woodward is for me simply because like I, he, his performance is such that I, I never forget that there's a man inside of the symbol that he's meant to be in that movie. But even then, you know, you mentioned that he, he's meant to represent like a group of people. Like to me, the tragedy of the character is that he is a man who's out of place everywhere. Like on the yeah, obviously on Summer Isle in the movie, he he's the Christian cop who is on on a land of pagans, right? Who are all set against him, sure. But and admittedly, this is only in the longer cut of the movie, which is the superior cut of the movie, no matter how you know fucked up some of the footage is. But watching him on the mainland, he's a joke to his fellow cops. He's he's a joke to the people who he serves on the mainland. You know, he's he's a guy who so holds to, you know, the, the sort of ideals that he sets for himself that he he he's really a man without a home in a way, you know. And I to me mm-hmm. there it just I can't help but feel for that guy. You know, and especially when, you know, he he he's presented with life in such a way, you know, on Summer Isle that I wonder if that man had gone to that island without the mission of finding that little girl, if he wouldn't have given in to any of the number of temptations that he found there on that island. You know what I mean? But I I appreciate the fact that, you know, he he sort of held to the mission simply because there was a little girl's life at stake. And as you know, because of that, like I, I find the guy deeply sympathetic, even though he has that sort of hard exterior. Yeah, I get that. I don't know. I and maybe, I, I guess, I, I it maybe I explained it wrong because I do I do find him sympathetic. I don't know. I guess what it boils down to is I just I don't really like him, um, and I feel like I would like Peter Cushing. <laughs> That's fair. I can I I can only think of one movie where I didn't like where I, I, I the movie succeeded in making me le- not like Peter Cushing and it's Star Wars because <laughs> uh, he's such a one dimensional evil asshole. Um, and, but also when I saw that, I didn't know who that was the first time I'd ever seen Peter Cushing as a kid. So I wonder if I had seen Star Wars after watching all these movies, if I still would have been like, he's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> Grand Moff Tarkin's fine. Uh, but you know, those maybe those rebels needed to just cool their fucking heels for a while. I mean, you know? he was trying to help them if they would have just listened to him. Just I mean, bring a little order to he, the galaxy, he was talking some sense. Uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, and and all of this is to say that uh, Wicker Man is one of my all time favorite movies. So, like, I feel like I'm coming off like I don't like it, and that's not at all how I want to come off. So, uh, I love that movie. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I enjoyed this movie so much is because I feel like it's probably an influence on it. Can I, there is a moment in the movie when I'm very curious to get you to read on it. If you think this makes him more of an asshole or if this makes him sympathetic, or maybe you have a thought aside from either of those, but there, and we're talking a lot about the wicker man here, but we'll get back to the movie <laughs> in hand here in just a second. But there's a moment in the wicker man when he finds himself in like a pagan cemetery, right? Well, no, it was, it was meant to be a Christian cemetery that had since been refitted and had become like a pagan cemetery, right? Like all of the uh, the crosses had been sort of broken or overturned or taken away. 
And there's just this one kind of quiet moment where he picks up two broken pieces of wood and he snaps one kind of down the center and wedges the other piece in to make like this very sort of makeshift cross and he sets it on a grave, right? Mm-hmm. What do you make of that moment? Um, I mean, I think he's, I think he's a deeply, a deeply spiritual person. Um, who respects the dead and feels like there are certain things that people deserve, like certain dignities yes. that all people deserve and are are in some ways entitled to, but are often or in certain situations denied. Um, and he wants to make it his mission to right what he feels are those wrongs. Like, like that's why he's a police officer. That's why... He has dedicated his life to law uh, and and order. You know, we keep going back to that word order. I mean, he's there on a righteous mission. He's trying to save the life of a young girl. So, okay, uh, everything that you just said leading up to this point, I agree with you 100%. But you're telling me you don't like the guy? No, he's just kind of an asshole. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I'm not saying, like, his, his mission is bad or that he's a bad person. There's a difference between, like, thinking someone's inherently bad and not liking them there's plenty of people i've met in the real world that like are cool like are certainly nice people or maybe not nice but are like people that aren't evil or inherently bad but that i just don't jive with you know what i mean like you know his 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 deeply religious and judgmental nature is very off-putting to me uh, that is not something that I really uh, uh, can kind of see eye to eye with. So it's more of a personal thing and less of a uh, overall sort of mission thing, if that makes sense. <laughs> you know, I think Sergeant Howie and Gwen Mayfield would have gotten along famously, though. Well, yeah, but she's also super accommodating. Like, she's somebody that doesn't want to make waves for the most part. Um, she does follow like what she feels is justice though. Um, and I do agree that she would have got along with him, but I think the difference is, I don't think that Gwen would have fought against the tides of, of Summer Isle. You know, I don't think that she would have been as judgmental towards their ways as he was. I think she would have questioned it. Even, even at the risk of somebody's life though, even at the risk of Howie's life, ultimately. Hmm. Well, clearly no, cause she is fighting for, you know, someone's life in this movie. Um, but you know, I, I was more talking about it, it given the circumstances under which she enters the town. She doesn't come to this place to find a missing girl. She goes there to do, to work, to be a teacher. I'm saying if Joan Fontaine's character was brought there, brought to Summer Isle to be, uh, a teacher, that it would have been a really different scenario, you know, like the plot of this movie transplanted to the location and cult of wicker man would have mirrored the thrust of this film. I think ultimately she would have gone against the grain just like she does here. But I think like the way she went about it would have been different. I think that's fair. I mean, I think she totally would have went for the, uh, Brad Eklund situation. I was going to say, it's funny that we wound up in this scene with her in bed, like waking up. It's like, I imagine like a nude Edward Woodward on the other side of the door, slapping his ass and pounding on the wall, you know? 
Yep. I, it's a, it's really a shame that we were denied. <laughs> Such a powerful emotional sequence. Uh, so this is a trip. really interesting point in the movie. And I was curious on your thoughts on this whole thing. And I heard some of the commentary on this. Uh, and uh, his thoughts were sort of negative regarding the jump, you know, putting her in a hospital and sort of leaving the town and kind of maybe grinding what, what uh, the plot of the film was to a halt to kind of explore this pseudo amnesia storyline. What do you, what do you think about this? How do you think this helps or hurts the movie? Uh, It's so, I, I think ultimately it's misjudged. Um, I, it feels like it's a setup for some big payoff later on, but given the amount of time that's passed, you know, and ultimately what is it, what does that give us story-wise? What does that give us plot-wise, right? Like so, ev- everything, I like the idea of her being put in this situation and having to, you know, sort of make her way back. Um, But it just, it... it... So for I mean, so my thought initially, this was where I kind of felt like it delved more into Rosemary's baby-esque territory. Um, oh, this is this is pure. This I, is when you were talking about gaslighting before. That's, well, that's what this yeah, is. That's what I mean. Is so so to me initially, it feels like it's supposed to be like okay, we 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 just showed the weird mask thing again from the beginning. This is a callback to the opening of the film. This is sort of. I think the film's trying to make you think this is going to be the payoff of that opening. Whereas that opening's never really going to have a payoff. <laughs> the The reality of that opening is it's, it's informative to her character, but that's about it. Yeah. Um, and this sequence is sort of a pull the rug out from under you moment where it's like, Oh, this is, this is kind of a big jump. It's going to pay off that. But what it does instead is go full tilt into the gaslighting element of the film leading into the finale. Um, And I kind of respect how hard it leans into that um, to really just fuck with her mind and, and sort of uh, uh, take advantage of her insecurities that they know are already there. Like we already know she was in hospital. We already know that she sort of doubts her own, uh, emotional capabilities in some ways, like, like that she sort of secretly is terrified that she's crazy, right? That's kind of a, an unspoken plot point. Um, and before this we got, or, or is it after when, when does she have the conversation? And we, we were talking about Wicker Man for so long with, um, with Kay Walsh about like believing in something and how that can give it power I kind of mentioned it earlier, like we admit, like if we admit we believe it, then what we believe can destroy us. Uh, Paraphrasing what was said earlier. Um, Did that already happen? Um, Paul, I'll admit it freely. I'm not sure. I've only seen this movie the one time earlier today. I'm not sure if this that actually happened. I want to say it happens later. Well, either way, yeah, I think it, it might happen right after this. It might be when she comes back from the hospital. And so I apologize for uh, getting that mixed up. But 
But I think this ties into that conversation really well and, and sort of hammers home what I really like about this film is that it shows how a cult, uh, you know, very, very carefully and systematically manipulates those it's attempting to control and kind of how, how they move the chess pieces. You know, I think Joan Fontaine is, is a chess piece in this film. And I really love how psychologically, uh, I don't know, coercive the manipulation is in this film um and and the dialogue really lands it well and it's just it's creepy you know just just the manipulation of it all is is upsetting outside of the events of the film no i agree i agree there you know you can't help but feel for her a little bit in these sequences because like you said it's kind of unspoken but you get the feeling that she is mentally very fragile because of obviously the trauma that she dealt with that we saw in the opening sequence of this movie and when we get here, we feel like she's never that far from completely cracking, you know? Uh, as a matter of fact, the moment that we're watching on screen right now, we think that, you know, when she sees that doll, it's like, okay, is this the thing that brings her memory back? Or is this the thing that's just going to crush her, you know? Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, it's the former, but still, like, it's... All of a sudden, because we care about this character, the threat of the film has completely shifted to one of the sort of, you know, psychological realm, as it were. Like, we no longer care about what's happening in the village. We no longer care about the uh, the threats there. Like, I, right now, our heart is with her just not completely breaking as a person, right? It's not necessarily about her getting yeah. back as quickly as possible, even though we know that's going to happen. And And the director is smart enough in this film to let Joan Fontaine just sort of act, you know, like just watch her perform because like that scene there where she was finally, that's one of the first times where she's kind of like, no, this, I'm not crazy. Like something is happening. I'm not wrong about it. Um, and she sort of finally has something to latch onto that allows her to take control. Even when things are outside of her control. And yet you're surrounded by people who sort of present themselves as composed, but everybody except for Kay Walsh is really just a big fat lie, <laughs> right? I mean, they're not who they say they are. They're not as calm and confident. In the end, we see them all for who they really are, which is just messy, you know, screwed up uh, servants, of something grander because they don't have that their own sense of agency. You know, this whole film is, is hinging on Joan Fontaine taking control of her life, which she finally does, you know, when it, when it all boils down to it. Um, and so I kind of like that, that it is character focused in that way. You know, we're not necessarily watching a woman getting swept up into a plot. We are watching the plot that eventually, you know, sets this woman on the right path, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, so anyway, all of this to say, I really like the hospital sequence. I, I think it, it mixes up the story a little bit. I think it does something really interesting. And I think it hammers home what the film's really about. The hospital sequence itself. No, I agree with you. I think it's great. The, the lead into it is just, it seems clunky to me. Um, yeah, bringing the back the, the mask. I, well, I think I think the weakest for me, for my money, the weakest element of this movie is is the opening. I I think that 
what this is all hinged on. Like, I think the opening is well made, I guess, but it just doesn't do a lot for the movie. If anything, it, it distracts. Do you and remember it a couple of a thing that's really disjointed? No, I agree. I agree. Do you remember a couple of episodes ago, Trace Thurman was on talking about the reptile and he talked about how the movie would likely be better if that opening scene, that pre-credit sequence weren't there. Yeah. I'm wondering if the same thing might be true here. If you snipped that entire opening sequence and just referred to it, you know, in passing throughout the course of the plot, like I'm, oh, I'm yeah. wondering. Yeah. I, I, I a hundred percent agree. I also think that the name, the witches is, is not good. <laughs> like yeah. I, I really don't like that. It's called the witches. I wish, um, I wish it was called almost anything else. Uh, the devil's own, the, the devil's own doll be... catches, catch can, you know, I think, I think the devil's own is probably the way to go. Um, but I can also see why a studio would be hesitant to call a movie that because it's, it's very, the witches, I mean, is very specific, right? Hammer loves specific titles. <laughs> they love their titles to tell you exactly what you're going to see or, or give you a more definitive idea. The devil's own is very vague. The witches is very specific. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. You know, so I think that's a part of it, but I also think it's a bit of it's incredibly spoilery for how the film's set up. Because if you really think about this movie, you're not supposed to know it's witches until the very end. That's when it's revealed, really. I mean, like you're you're told about voodoo dolls and things like that and 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 voodoo magic. Um, but you're never specifically told about witches. By the way, this guy is so great. Mm-hmm. His performance in it is marvelous. Yeah, he the, is, the, he, he's, he's very lovable in his... He is the... As much as Stephanie is, like, this is... You know, the both of them in their own ways, that's Roman and many cast of it from Rosemary's Baby, you know? Yeah. Well, I think the whole town is kind of Roman and many. I mean, that's... Oh, they, that, no, like, they like, are, I'm but I just so mean... Many, well, and that's another thing about this movie. It, this movie feels... And again, I I understand that this wasn't the first folk horror movie horror movie ever, and I don't have them up specifically off the top of my head. I'm sure there were other movies to do similar things, but this movie feels very very um, specifically influential to several of my favorite horror films. You know, like and and that I I, I gotta say I I really really loved this movie. I thought it was great. I mean, and it and it feels very uh, important in the pantheon of horror. No, I, I I dig it, man. I do. I it surprised me how much I liked it for a movie that wasn't really ever on my radar, even for being a Hammer film. So I, I was kind of pleasantly surprised by it. Uh, as we get into the final act, I do think the movie drops the ball a little bit, and we'll get to that, but. But no, overall, I, I was little. I, I, I mean, I like the the finale. I, I like where it goes. I mean, it's a little obvious, um, and it doesn't do anything spectacular with it, um, like I think it could have. But having said that, I mean, there are plenty of horror films from this time that 
similarly have somewhat subpar finales. Uh, not to excuse it, but it's also a bit common, <laughs> you know, with some of these where the endings fall a bit flat. Um, but I, I do think it's also a, a little progressive in some ways. Um, like, cause at first I was like, man, I can't tell if this movie is crazy misogynistic or super progressive. Like I cannot tell <laughs> if what it's doing is pre- cause there's a line when she writes that uh, play where, um, you know, uh, early in the film and the girl has to put on a mustache and play a man. And she's like, well, why do I have to be a man? And she says, uh, she's like, well, there's hardly any women in the play because hardly any women invented anything. And I was just like, oof, like, oh, yeah. wow. That was, what a that line. Was, that was a win. But when you think about it in the context of this film where the leader of all of this is a woman who is the only person in the town with any sense of agency and her whole thing is to get more life so she can do more uh, and, and be more powerful, right? Like that to me seems like that line was there on purpose. So it could be challenged um, in that the, this is a woman who wants and desperately seeks to challenge the status quo. Um, And I, so I do think, there was a little more going on with that kind of stuff. And I, and I do think it's cool that it's like, here's a, here's a movie where the main character is a woman, the main villain's a woman that, that was not always very common in horror. And this movie does, I mean, even though it wasn't around at the time when this was made, I think ultimately it does pass the Bechdel test. So that's something. Oh, it, it, it definitely does. And I, I think that, yeah, I mean, I really think that there's a lot of things that this movie's doing that was ahead of its time in some ways. Um, and it doesn't feel like the other movies Hammer was making. You know, we've watched four other movies from, ni- what, all, all from 1966, right? <laughs> like, all of those movies. And this feels nothing like any of them. No, that's a fact. That is no, it's it's entirely it's to me it stands apart from pretty much every other Hammer film I've seen, um, yeah. and that's not a bad thing. I but no, no, it it strengthens their catalog if anything. Like I, I I think that's that's really wonderful. And again, we already talked about it briefly, but like it it really <laughs> I hate to say this because I love I love Bray, but I think it benefits from not being shot at Bray. Oh yeah, I can't imagine it being shot at Bray. Uh, it yeah. just wouldn't work. Um, but no, no, I do. I do. You know, it's funny. We were just talking about the Wicker Man and comparing the novels and whatnot. I, I would actually be interested in reading the original Norloff's novel at this point. I, I would too. Yeah, that I think cat is a marvelous fucking actor. I'm sorry. Um, no, I think it would be great. It's funny. I was listening to the commentary for a bit. And, you know, it was noted that Nora Lofts was actually a massively popular author uh, in her day, you know, uh, one of the bigger ones. And it's funny, like, her books haven't gone out of print, but nobody really, that's a very creepy shot. This moment reminds me a hell of a lot of Kill List. Um, oh, God, I love that shot. Yeah. The, and, and again, this, The Witches is such a misleading title because by all accounts, this is not a witch movie. This is no. a cult movie. This is definitely 100% a cult movie. 
Um, and and the only thing that's good about the title is when you find out, like when I was watching it and I discovered it was a cult movie, I got so excited. I was like, oh, shit, this is a cult <laughs> movie? Oh, yes. Like, because I was expecting a witch movie, which are arguably like, yes, there are there is a witch, but it's a cult movie. <laughs> but the movie then should have been called The Witch. And yet, the cult. call yeah, it the cult. The cultists, <laughs> you know. Uh, no, I. Uh, but sorry, going back to the novel for a second, I just a thought that hit me was the fact that this author was so very well loved in her day. This feels a little bit like Bray to me. Uh, I know it's not, but just this moment, her escaping the house. It, yeah, it, I can it, see that. Well, the stairs it, and like the. Yeah, well, yeah even how it's I, of the house she's in, you know, going back to the first and this feels like, you know, this is a little reptile. This is a little plague of the zombies. Plague of the zombies. Yeah. I mean, anytime you got like a cool, eerie graveyard type of scene, um, you know, clearly this feels like a like kind of poor day for night kind of shooting. Um, like you can tell they're sort of trying to dampen the the light but i will say this out of all the hammer movies that scream is done that's terrifying by the way (laughs) that's like the damn bag in audition it's like what what's what's in there what's going on and i will say i did watch this with my girls oh god and they were terrified They, they they both said this was the scariest movie they've ever seen that's awesome. And they have seen like legitimately good horror. Like they've seen Jaws. They've seen all kinds of this movie scared them more than anything else. And I asked my, one of my daughters, my, uh, my seven year old, I asked her why. And her, she, she thought about it for a moment and then she went, I don't know. And I was like, that's awesome. <laughs> that's the, that's I mean, the best say that. possible answer. But she couldn't like, she could not, she's like, it was just really, she's like, she's like, and she, and she said something along the lines of nothing. She's like, nothing really scary happens, but it's so scary. And I thought that was like, that's the best compliment. Like a movie can get, you know, is that it just elicits fear. Um, But yeah, the cat and the doll just freaked me out when I saw that. I was like, Oh, I hate that the way it moves and oof. But that feels again very killist, like in terms of the the oddness of it and sort of throwing you off and not quite sure what you're looking at, um, just to sort of disorient you, you know. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And then unfortunately, we get to you know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. It was a movie that I hadn't seen up until uh, I want to say the beginning of last summer when a guest on the previous version of this podcast. Um, uh, David the Smallchin came on and he chose The Devil's Reign to talk about. And The Devil's Reign is such a great, gritty, creepy kind of Satanist slash cult movie that it feels in its own way kind of grounded and very of our world. And then you get to the moment when you actually see like the rites and, you know, the, the, uh, the, the ritual as it were. And and then Ernest Borgnine comes out in his robes and his costume, and at some point he, he his face turns into like a, a, a goat devil's face thing. 
And it's just kind of hard to take seriously at that point. And I get a little bit of that from the end of this movie. Like it, it go to me, it rides a little off the rails when it gets into the nitty gritty of the big ritual at the end to the point where, you know, I'm, I'm, I was with the movie all the way up until that point. And then when we get to that moment, you know, when she's passing around like the mud and shit, like <sighs> it's, it just, it, well, it and, and she's in her costume. It just, I was like, God. The, can- the candle hat is a bit much. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll say this. I mean, there's there's two things I want to comment on about that. One, Kay Walsh's, like, exposition here is, is really the first time in the movie where it kind of delves into... Um, that you you mentioned it earlier, like the the uh, the Bond villain monologue kind of territory, yeah. where she's kind of like, "Oh, you're one of us now. Here's what's happening, you know. Here's and, where and we're it, going to and tell it, and not show." It feels like uh, counterintuitive to the movie we've seen up until this point. Uh, it grinds the movie to a halt. You could cut all of it. I mean, none of it is necessary. If you literally went from sort of the previous scene to kind of the end of this scene or or really just excised most of it and just went straight into the ritual, I think it'd be a stronger film. Um, and it would it would probably be more disturbing and probably help that that later scene land. The, the, the second thing I'll say, and it's the one thing in the commentary that I actually thought was good. We haven't really we talked we we've we have hinted at the uh the commentary. There's one thing he said, um, Ted Newsom, that I did really, really like. And he talked about witchcraft and movies. And his take was that witchcraft in movies is often just like a big glob of everything. Like it's it's all kinds of different, like weird uh occult subgenres just mashed together, and there aren't any real like overarching rules to it as there are in other horror subgenres. So when it comes to witchcraft, it's like, whatever, throw whatever at the wall. And that's what it is. And the final sequence of this movie feels like the, the definition of that. It's just like every weird little cult ritual thing you've seen in other movies, they just like throw into this ritual and it doesn't have any like rhyme or reason to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And we, we definitely get that. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny. I was, I was going to lay into the commentary a little bit more than I think I will now, if by virtue of the fact that, uh, over the course of this commentary, I was doing a little bit of research on the side and I discovered that Mr. Newsom passed away last year. So we can, we can still be honest about it. I, I will say that in listening to the commentary, I, I just the man's commentary wasn't for me. I, I think his approach to speaking about women was kind of deplorable. Um, in the first part of the commentary, you know, he's discussing some of the older actresses and their, you know, other things that they'd done. He mentions a woman being, you know, an older woman being nude, and you know, just the way he was talking about women's bodies. And there was there's this one quote this moment where he was talking about an actress who was somewhat older who had been nude in the film, and he's just like, Ugh, you know, so uh, might not be for everybody, you know, and. Then later on in the film, when he's talking about the uh, Linda character and how he felt that maybe Stephanie wasn't completely in the wrong, that maybe, you know, 
Uh, because what's going to happen to Linda? She's going to stay in that nowhere town. She's going to grind out a couple of kids. She's going to get fat, and her life is going to go nowhere. And it's like there, to me, like listening to that commentary in a couple of points, there is almost a, a, a naked contempt for women coming from the man. So I guess I did wind up going on about the commentary anyway. But you know, I, <laughs> well, I hate and, that he's no longer with us. I don't want to speak ill of the dead, and yet at the same time, that and, commentary will last forever. So why not I, comment on it now? Yeah, and I, I will say this. Ted Newsom's done commentaries on other Hammer films. Some of them are actually incredibly informative, um, and I and I enjoy them. This particular commentary didn't really resonate with me too too well. I, I agree with Jinx. There's some things he says that um, rub me the wrong way. I don't love that soliloquy. He, go, he basically says, and again, yeah, it does feel sort of like shitty to like rag on his thoughts. I'll, I'll say this. I, I don't necessarily subscribe to the same opinion. He, he basically says that the, that the thing that's really interesting about Kay Walsh's desire to, and we didn't talk about this really at all, um, to, to take the body or to take the life force or whatever you interpret it as of this young girl um, so she can add another 50 or 60 years to her life. Um, is interesting because Kay Walsh's Stephanie Beck's character actually would do something with her life versus this girl, um, which is a very odd stance to well, take. Well, what is that um, phrase? I remember now, hearing it when Benjamin I, Button came out, the idea that youth is wasted on the young. You yeah, know, now, I, I think what he was getting at, um, and, and I'm, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I think the point of what he was saying was, Kay Walsh in the film is this accomplished uh, uh, woman who is a famous writer and who is very wealthy and who has clearly done a lot with her life. And then when you see the people in the small town, they are very like, you know, they're very simple folk. They, they don't have, you know, a lot of ambition um, now again, who's to, who's to weigh one life against another first off, like who's to say that a salt, a small, simple life doesn't mean as much as somebody who's rich and writes for a newspaper. Right. I mean, like, that's not really a fair thing to say. And that's one of the reasons I don't subscribe to this belief, but I think he's saying in the context of the film, it's presenting us with a dilemma that there are people who would use that time to perhaps affect the world in a grander way. Hence that line I mentioned earlier about, oh, well, hardly women have invented anything. Um, you know, is this is her chance to actually make a positive mark on the world and maybe that sacrifice is worthwhile, I think is what he was getting at. I just don't agree which, with it. Which I is, think it's yeah, it's, it's fucking terrible. Uh, it is it's a terrible take, but, I, but take. I think that's that's sort of what he was saying the film was suggesting. Um, no, I don't think. I, I don't I, think. I think the film finds. I think the film finds its villain as contemptuous as as it should. Yeah, um, I mean, I'll tell you my note because I take notes when I listen to the commentaries. Here's my note on that line. Uh, my note was suggesting that the woman would do more with the girl's life than she would do with it. Dot dot dot. Ugh. That's what I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, the, it seems like you know the witches and you know stuff. They they there's something really awful about the fact, and here's the thing, we can certainly apply this to the real world too, and not just, you know, the the world of this film, but the idea of prizing youth itself and not the young, you know, I mean this, you know, Linda was a person, 
you know, she, she wanted a boyfriend, she wanted a life. And, you know, the elders of that town just sort of beat this sort of subservience into her. And then, you know, what was their plan to just absolutely squeeze her youth from her to their benefit? That's fucking awful. You know, I, I, it's infuriating to me to think that there would be any reason to excuse that idea. You know what I mean? I, I just, I, I, I find well, it. And, and I, yeah, and I, I disagree with it. I agree. You know, I, I think that I think, and I also think the movie makes it pretty clear that it disagrees with it too. You know, I oh, think yeah. the movie, the movie is basically saying like, yeah, the, like, especially making her a student of Joan Fontaine's like, like she's a teacher. She's there to guide these kids, to help them discover what they're passionate about. And that's what Joan Fontaine really wants to do. Um, so instead of writing these kids off as Kay Walsh would do, um, she's willing to give them a chance at uh, an opportunity for a very real future, whatever that future might be. Um, if, if she wants to settle down with her boyfriend and have kids, that is not a bad thing. That is, that is a worthwhile thing, right? Because it's worthwhile to her. Um, it's, it's not on anybody else to, to judge them. And, and also how can she possibly judge people's life decisions when she walks around wearing that candle hat? I mean, my God, <laughs> that is the most silly fucking thing. I mean, it, that, I, I laughed out loud when I saw that and, and there, it was disappointing. Know, and here's the thing. I told you that cults creep me out more than anything. There is early on when they're like rubbing themselves down and you know, they're, they're on their knees and sort of hailing her, all this stuff that we're seeing right now, candle has side, like the beginning of this is very creepy. And again, I mentioned Lord of illusions earlier, but I mean the, the cult sequence in that, you know, Barker, I think must've seen this movie. It had to have played some sort of influence on him for Lord of illusions because that sequence is just astonishingly creepy in that movie. Here we go from genuine creepiness to just off the rail silliness in the blink of an eye. Um, and it, it goes on for so very long, you know, um, which is weird considering that, you know, we've already gotten like, <laughs> we've laughed about the Bond villain monologue. So what is the point I love that somebody runs up to relight the candle? Like, uh, you know, to, <laughs> you, you've got the earth, you've got the, the, the water. Yeah. You, I, I love the idea that somebody is just like, here's your candle, you know, behind her. It's so what, like, what is she handing them? What is that? that well, she put, she put earth in there and then she poured water on it and she set it ablaze. I don't know where wind would have figured in, but I don't know that that was meant to be like maybe an elemental thing. But ultimately, what she's passing them looks like handfuls of poo, Paul. Uh, it, it's, I mean, that is... You're not wrong. <laughs> that is disgusting, whatever the fuck is going on there. Um, and again, the, the, at this point, the, I, I'll admit it, I like this movie, Paul. I would give this movie a thumbs up. I was very surprised, but I genuinely enjoyed it. I will say the movie completely fucking lost me at this point. I, I, so I agree that this is silly. Um, it does not lose me cause I, but I think it's because of the goodwill the film has, you know, sort of earned up until this point. Um, but 
like it's I guess what I'm saying is it's not enough to make me not be a huge fan of this film. Yeah, no, I, I I agree with no, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't sink the <laughs> film, it doesn't tank it entirely, but but golly, this ending is not great. And I and I'll go ahead one step further, Paul. I'll say the movie never recovers past this point for me. Well, it doesn't uh, have to because, like most Hammer movies, right in its climax, it just sort of <laughs> ends. It just sort of stops. <laughs> I mean, I love Hammer. Don't get me wrong, but like, like Hammer has this thing where it's like about two thirds of the way through the third act, the credits roll. <laughs> yep, it's just kind of how they do it. So. You know, and th- I think that might be why I'm like okay when the payoff to a movie, some of these films like doesn't totally land. Um, and I will say, at least it's like something crazy. Like I'd rather this than a boring sort of flat ending. At least this is sort of drawing a smile because of how bizarre it is. I would I would rather have this than some super boring, wordy ending that that doesn't really deliver anything fun. I would I would rather have something crazy. Uh, but 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 wouldn't boring even if boring would have been a failure in its own right. Wouldn't boring have been a little closer in line to everything that had led up until that point, as opposed to just going batshit fucking insane? Yeah, I mean, and that's more in line with Nigel Neal. Like, I, I'm surprised true, true. you wrote this yeah. ending. I mean, like, a lot of, I could, I think, like, the big complaint, I could see someone lodge against a movie, like, and I keep coming back to it, but it's only because I just spent a lot of time on it, something like The Abominable Snowman, is that it's very slow, um, it not a lot happens in it, um, but it's incredibly fascinating. And I could see someone sort of lobbing, well, it's boring at the ending. Um, you know, and I love that ending. I think it's a great ending. Uh, but, you know, I think in this movie, no one could say that this movie's boring. I mean, maybe the middle parts, but I don't think when you walk away from this ending that you could say. So maybe it was him reacting to some of that. Um, because that, that was sort of cast his way on some of his earlier work for Hammer. So maybe this was his attempt to, uh, deviate from a normally, uh, slow and, uh, wordy ending. Nah, that's fair. Uh, This is, but it also like, there, there are three acts to this ending, Paul. Like, I mean... (laughs) Well, they go all what's what's weird about this ending. I mean, there's a lot of weird things, but it's weird that they go all in on like ritual. Like it's like, okay, we're going to do this crazy, long, complicated ritual, not give the audience any sort of like roadmap to it. That's and we're just going to fucking go for broke. Well, and I think that's the problem with it is it is it doesn't feel it it feels like people are improving on screen. Yep. And that's not how your big sort of witch or satanic whatever ending should feel. It should feel calculated and complex, not uh haphazard and random. <laughs> 
Yeah, which, you know, it, it's funny, too, because when you look at Stephanie, you know, there in that performance, there's this feeling that, ah, yes, this is all going to, you know, according to plan. But well, it's one of those, like, I'm going to trust like, my director. You know, yeah, it's one of those, like, okay, he's t- Cyril's telling me to do this, so it's got to make sense. Okay, I'm well, going to go for it. I mean, I, you know, Cyril pooched it. In, <laughs> in the final few minutes. Um, also, I, I, some of I the stuff they do with I don't I don't hate is... this ending. I, I I mean I'm shitting on it a little bit, but I don't I don't despise it. I don't think it's that bad. I mean, it Paul, still pays off. Tell me it's not that bad when you get Gwen being like, I know what I'll do. I'll soil her robe. Like that's just well, she spills her blood. No blood can be spilled during the ceremony. They established that earlier. They do, but Paul, 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 and her acting there as great as she's been in this movie, and she has oh my god, <laughs> she that last moves little... her arms. Out. Yeah, that's a little... oh, it Paul is bad. bad. Paul. Well, Kay Walsh is great when she's being you know the proper successful wealthy. Uh, ingenue that that she was you know but now like she she, you can tell she struggles a bit being the -the over-the-top villain that's not really in her wheelhouse or at least it doesn't feel that way to me um no it wasn't no you're right i and what the fuck is this like graham graham i'm sorry but get your fucking hands off the girl like i i have to say the grandma character really confused me um, because I mean, I get that she was a red herring. Like the first part of the movie is like, oh, she's the main witch, right? And and yeah. obviously she's not. But she also was like a bitch who let the main witch like use her granddaughter, and yep. that's and also like we know she put her granddaughter's hand through. I don't know. I didn't really understand what she a put fucking. Through. She put it through Something a laundry with like mangle. A laundry? Like... Yeah, my kids were like, "What?" My kids were like, "What? What does that mean? What? What she put her hand through?" I was like. Honestly, I don't know what that is. Some sort of laundry machine, I it's guess. Like a, it's um, so it's like a sheet straightener kind of thing where you have two. Think... It's like imagine two big rolling pins, essentially, okay. and then you yeah. feed the. You know uh, what I, the I kept? I kept imagining the mangler. <laughs> That's kind of yeah. I mean, the mangler kind of. Like I kept imagining like Toby Hooper's the mangler when she said like, "Oh, the launderer thing," because that was like a laundry thing. And uh, yeah, I was like, "Well, her her arm's going to be like eviscerated then. Like, it's not going to exist." And by the way, this man, when you get to the final bit with Gwen in school, it's like, "Are we? Are we really not going to pay off Linda? Are we not going to pay off?" Poor Ronnie, are we not gonna? So well, I think gonna... the payoff is that she's not dead and reincarnated as Kay Walsh, and mm-hmm. it's weird. It's a little weird to me that the brother was there, like that he's sort of like cool with her or whatever. Um, well, that's the I thing. Feel... What becomes of that town after this? Well, I think the insinuation, and and again, this movie makes you do a lot of work. <laughs> To, to kind of like come up with my 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 takeaway was that by defeating Kay Wall, she has freed the town that they were or sort of under her ultimate spell, her brother included. Part of the reason her brother wasn't a priest was because she probably wouldn't let him be one. 
um, given her proclivity towards the dark arts. Um, so to me, it's sort of like Joan Fontaine has freed them of this uh, 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 influence and now they can live their lives as normal. So absolving them of, of guilt in some ways uh, because they were, again, not necessarily acting under their own will. Because this movie's all about like the a- the agency or lack thereof of anxiety or threat, right? Because like Joan Fontaine isn't really able to act of her own will until the end of this movie because she finally stands up to those things she's most afraid of. Uh, similarly, the town is under you know that same kind of pressure and force that through Joan Fontaine's sort of you know victory is able to free them as well. Yeah, that makes sense. And I don't know. I just feel like I, it, it feels like the climax of the movie goes on for far too long. And then the aftermath is just like, you know, uh, uh, uh 20 seconds of tap dancing and then credits. Like it, it just feels, <laughs> but that's, <laughs> I mean, that's every, I mean, I love hammer, but isn't that every hammer movie? But, I mean, but, they, but they, no, they're, okay. 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 They're, they're not, I, I, I take that back. I agree that that's not every hammer movie because most hammer movies have an appropriately length sort of final act, right? Like, like the, the act, they don't drag that final act did drag. I, I do agree that it drags a bit, um, but they do all sort of end fairly quickly and at times unceremoniously. I don't know that I, I can't think of a hammer movie off the top of my head that like, I, I just, I don't know, man, that ended in such a way that felt completely unsatisfying to me. And I wouldn't say that, okay, it's unfair of me to say that this movie is completely unsatisfying. It pretty much wraps up everything you need to, I guess, you know what? I think the movie would have almost been better if it had cut to that shot of Stephanie's face with the, the wide eye staring, right? Which I actually think is a creepy image. If you just run the credits over that, or if you just cut the black on that, that would almost be more in keeping with how Hammer traditionally ends a movie. It's the fact that they decided to go ahead and have an epilogue, and then that epilogue really doesn't do jack shit, that kind of just annoys me. Well, the epilogue feels very American. Like, that that feels very... I mean, so many... I mean, how many Hitchcock films have like a like a ridiculously shitty joke at the end of the movie that like completely undermines the hey, movie that just came hey, well, hey, the man who knew hey. too much the man who knew too much is that a great movie right jimmy Stewart, like great movie horrible horrible ending horrible where he like walks in the room he's like blah 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 here's a joke haha the end like at the end of that movie, like this this incredible, tense, <laughs> amazing movie, there's this like stupid sitcom joke ending that like completely undermines the tension you just felt. I don't know. Like it there's there, there's a lot of that shit in in fifties and sixties dramas and thrillers. It was very common to just sort of like give the audience a laugh at the end of your movie that feels like completely disjointed from the rest of the film. That was very like 
Hollywood at that time. So to me, this feels like it was just trying to fit in with those movies. Um, and I just, I guess because I like a lot of those movies, I just kind of forgave it. Cause I'm like, ah, oh, well, that's just kind of the time that this came out in. Plus it does serve a narrative purpose in my eyes, because it, it sort of tells you that the town was under Stephanie's control and without her, they can function and be normal. I just feel like if you're going to do that though, then show everybody, then pay everybody off. And it just, it, uh, I don't know. It, I was I mean, left wanting. Sure. I, I, and again, I, I, I wouldn't go to bat for the ending as a whole, but I don't, I don't think I hate the end ending as much as, or hate might be the wrong word. I don't think I'm as dissatisfied with like that last little scene as much as you are. No, you were, you were um, right when you said hate. That's fine. <laughs> I don't hate it. I, I don't love it. But I, uh, you know, but that's because mainly of what preceded it. Um, I don't, I don't really, the ritual stuff goes on way too long and it's really silly. Um, Having said all of that, I love the movie. Um, Most of it, I think, is way ahead of its time. Uh, And I think it's a precursor, a very clear precursor to both Rosemary's Baby and Wicker Man. Um, which are two of the best movies of the next, you know, five to 10 years. Uh, so, you know, it, it's worth watching on that alone. And I think it's a great note for Joan Fontaine to go out on. I think she no, gives a great performance and it's, it's really great. entertaining. No, I'll give you that. And I do like the movie. Uh, I think it's because I like the movie so much and because it was such a pleasant surprise. If this makes any sense, I think because I liked it as much as I did, that, I'm a little more annoyed with how it ended. You know what I mean? Um, because uh, you got to the end and it could have been a slam dunk, but it wasn't, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But still, you know, I for what it is, I really, really enjoyed it. And I, I agree with you. I think Joan Fontaine was fantastic in it. And if that wound up being the last time that she led a film, I, I think that's a hell of a note to go out on. Yeah, I would agree. All right, so Paul, we have made it through an entire commentary. Now, uh, this is the point of the uh, the episode where we usually go on for another forty five minutes to an hour, um, <laughs> which is which is normally fine. But I tell you what, let's go ahead and wrap up early tonight because uh, if we don't, Paul, I'm just going to start ranting and raving about fucking Richard Stanley, and nobody wants to hear that because we've had a mostly good time here this evening, even if we're starting yeah. off on a kind of down note. That's all right. I think I think we uh, I think we. We we did what we needed to do tonight. We did. We did. <laughs> we talked we talked some witches, man. We did. So. <laughs> Too true. All right. Well, Paul, uh, you got anything to say before we go ahead and take off this evening? Do you have any final thoughts on the witches? Uh no, just uh check it out. I feel like this is a sorely underseen film. Uh as I said, I had personally never seen it before uh this week. And uh, the Scream Factory Blu-ray is great. Um, I didn't talk about it much, but the uh, the transfer is fantastic. It really one. is. Yes, I was. Yeah, I mean, it was. Uh, we we talk about the transfers a lot being good, but I, this one really, I, I found it very striking. I don't know if like the the fil- the print was in better condition, but it looks really good um, throughout. I mean, the opening's a little dodgy. 
Um, but pretty much everything after the opening sequence is is fantastic. So it's it's well worth the the twenty bucks. Um, and it's it's not as stacked as most of these releases go. There's not many special features on it. Uh, and it's a hard movie to find much information about. I, I tried to do some research online and there's really not a lot out there about it. Um, but it's a, it's a really great movie and definitely one worth owning. So yeah, check it out. It's, it's, I think if you're a fan of full core, you're going to really enjoy it. Good. Now, now Paul, where can folks find you at online? Uh, I am usually loitering on Twitter under the handle at Paul is great 2000. Uh, I am very modest and, you know, I wanted that to be reflected in my Twitter handle. All right. Thank you, Paul. Nothing. I was was hoping for a, you're welcome. That was supposed to be. I mean, that goes without saying, doesn't it? No, I just, you know, I went without. I'll, I'll, I'll you know, it's, it's too late. It's fine. It's too late now. It's fine. It's very late. (laughs) It's like after midnight. That's cool. Whatever. You know, just said thanks. I wasn't expecting dead silence in return, well, but, you know, that's cool. It's fun. It's whatever. It's... We're post-commentary, so that part can be edited. <laughs> I'm going to leave it all in leading up to... That's, that's in line. <laughs> and thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below. I know you're not going to, but I have to implore you every single episode, use the comment section below. You know what? Scream at us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Scream Addicts, and I'm at Jinx1981. It'd be great if you could do that, but if not, I understand, and I love you anyway. In any case, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend.